everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of June 6, 2023. Uh, if anybody's a new listener that I got a chance to meet at Phoenix Fan Fusion this last weekend, came to one of the panels I hosted, welcome. Good to have you. Thanks for showing up at the panel. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, collaborating with my partner here, Rocky from Comic Boom, to talk about the DC books that are dropping this week. Um, not necessarily the biggest week in terms of number of issues that came out, but a couple of really big issues, uh, especially the milestone initiative that was like a hundred pages. So still a lot of, uh, good content o- overall. I thought it was an okay week. Nothing really blew me away, but I didn't think anything was, you know, outright terrible either. Um, so yeah, I don't know. What'd you think overall, Rock? Uh, you know, I'm optimistic. You know, the, the dawn of the DCU is well underway and this is, this continues the general feeling of optimism that I have with uh, most of the titles. And, uh, I'm, I'm actually, I, I, while I only skim read the new talent showcase, I, I would like to do a full, full bore, full head on review of, in more detail of the milestone initiative. I was even impressed with, uh, I, I read only two stories in that one, but I was impressed with what I read for, you know, considering they're new writers. And yeah, so, and the rest of them, I, you know, I mean, Flash 800, the big milestone issue. Batman has some very interesting developments. We got the 11th issue of, uh, Dark, uh, Dark Knights of Steel. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm overall. I'm you know. I, I'm I'm feeling I'm I'm feeling feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling more optimistic than not. I'll still have some rants, mini rants. I'll go on, but I'm sure you will too. So we'll have some fun. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I got a chance to talk to a couple of DC creators. Just being, you know, Tom King was one of the uh, vision. You know, I know it's a Marvel. Um, a character, obviously, and that's what the panel was focused on because Paul Bettany was there at the show as well doing uh, signing autographs and giving photo opportunities and what have you. But, uh, but yeah, I talked to Tom a little bit about what's going on over at DC and how he's feeling. And then Dan Didio was there. So, you know, obviously we, cu- we caught up a little bit. Um, you know, I, I talked to Dan you know, just a few weeks ago when he was on the show. We spent a good hour after we recorded just catching up. Um, but it was good to see him in person and, you know, he, he re- reiterated some stuff. To me, so it's an interesting place for DC right now. I feel like editorially they're starting to find their footing. Obviously, there are still issues, um, but man, they're still, and again, through no faults of their own, they're still a little hamstrung by the decisions that are being made uh, by the the parent, you know, the, the company that's calling the shots now, right? AT&T bought them, still owns a controlling interest, but they're letting Discovery, you know, make all the decisions yeah. as far as allocating resources, what shows they exhibit at, which basically is no shows. They're not exhibiting anywhere um, because they, they are trying to recoup all that money that AT&T spent to buy direct TV. And, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, DC comics should not be expected to make a sizable contribution to that, that debt. It's, that's just not realistic. So yeah. I don't know. We'll see maybe if whatever decisions James Gunn is, making whatever he's planning out for the DC cinematic universe. Maybe that will help to move the needle a little bit and DC will get to start exhibiting that show some more. I mean, that's my hope. Um, I sort of have my doubts. I mean, DC is not Marvel. It never has been. I don't know that you'll ever see a billion dollar DC movie the way you do with Marvel. It's just, it's just the, the universe is not, just not built that way. So yeah. anyway, uh, that's a whole nother topic. We could do a whole multi-hour, uh, podcast episode on that so instead let's dive into books as rocky mentioned a new talent showcase the milestone initiative it's 100 pages there's a ton of stories in here 
Um, I'm going to go through all of the creators for all 12 stories. Uh, there is a little bio for each creator in the back of the book. I encourage you to check that out. Uh, and when I say each creator, it's the writers and the artists. So there were 12 writers. There were 12 artists. They went through this uh, this program. It's all explained uh, by a forward from Reginald Hudlin, who's one of the uh, founders of the original Milestone, is heavily involved in the current iteration. He gives all the, the rundown of, of what they did and how it was all set up. And then we've got the stories in there. So the first one is Third Wheel, written by Ashley Allen. Yasmin Flores Montanez is the penciler. Walden Juan on inks. Brian Valenza on colors. Blood in the Water by Cheryl Lynn Eaton. Uh, as the writer, Atagwin Ilhan does the pencils. Wade Von Grobinger on inks. Brian Valenza on colors. Often imitated by Jared E. Uh, sorry, Jared A. Lujan. Cameron White does the pencils, LeBeau Underwood on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, uh, Ablution by Greg Burnham, Marcus Smith does the pencils, Roberto Paggi on inks, Luis Guerrero on colors, Makings of You by Jared Rice Pratt is the writer, Damian Hampton does pencils, Anthony Fowler Jr. on inks, Hi-Fi on colors, Every World Fades by Zipporah Smith as writer, Lucas Silviera does the pencils, John Libesay on inks, and Alex Gormas on colors, Patria y Vida by Julio Anta. As writer, Andrea Rosales does the pencils. Scott Hanna on inks and Andrew Dollhouse on colors. Who's Left Behind, written by Morgan Hampton. He's the current writer on the Cyborg series. Uh, Tia Ankum does pencils. Jose Marzon Jr. on inks. Chris Sotomayor on colors. The Hate You Live by writer Jerome Rett. Patterson Oviera does the pencils. Wade Von Grobager on inks. Hi-Fi on colors. Something Sweet by Nathan uh, Kanan. He's the writer. Gregory Maldonado does pencils. Anthony Fowler Jr. on inks. Michael Atea on colors. Family Values by Jordan Clark. As writer, Miguel C. Hernandez on pencils. Jose Marzon Jr. on inks. Andrew Dollhouse on colors. And finally, My Brother's Keeper by Dorado Quick. As writer, Charles Stewart III on pencils. Dexter Vine on inks. Nick Filardi on colors. So uh, overall, I would say I was pretty impressed with these stories. As I was reading them, you know, I read the first one. I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's a that's a pretty good story. It stars uh, Static and Rocket. They're sort of teaming up. And these are sort of out of continuity. The stories might not necessarily fit in with the continuity that we've seen so far in the, uh, the current iteration of the Milestone Universe. Reginald Hunlin explains that in the foreword, saying basically they just want one of these writers to set their stories in the Milestone Universe with Milestone characters but not be beholden to any uh, continuity that's necessarily going on right now. So it's a pretty fun story uh, of the team up, and it plays a little bit with the, kind of the flirtatious relationship that Static and Icon have. So I got done reading that. I was like, hey, you know, that's pretty good. I wonder if that's going to be my favorite story. And then the next one, Blood in the Water, written by Cheryl Lynn Eaton. The, the art, the pencils by Atagwin Ilhan are fantastic. I finished reading that, and I was like, oh, that's really good. Maybe that's going to be uh, my favorite story. And that was sort of a recurring theme. As I was going through these, often imitated. It's the next one by uh, Jared Luhan, absolutely fantastic with rocket. Uh, uh, sorry, with um, hardware, basically fighting uh, an automated version of himself that uh, Avila built from you know pilfering his designs that were still left at Alva Industries, and then that uh, ablution story by Greg Burnham. Again, I read that, and then I'm like, man, I think that's my favorite. That and that one may be that one may have stuck when I, I thought that because it's a story of Icon way back in the 1800s when he was uh, 1863 in Richmond, Virginia, 
when he was attacked, you know, he was trying to lead, um, not necessarily a slave revolt, but, but lead enslaved people to their freedom and everything that went along with kind of the, um, kind of the upheaval, uh, with the civil war and all that. And talks about him mortal, but the woman that he spends his wife with never says they're actually married, but she's basically his wife. She's aging. He's not. And everything that goes along with that. So that was fantastic. The art and colors in that one are amazing as well. So that, I think that one may have been my favorite story. But again, as I was reading these each time I'd come across a new story and I'd read it and I would think, Oh man, you know, maybe that's my favorite. The, the next story introduced uh, a character. I don't know if he was around in the first iteration of, um, of the milestone universe. But it was really, really interesting. I'm trying to find the character's name. Um, he seemed to be French. He was kind of speaking in this sort of French-English uh, combination. He he captured um, – Curtis Metcalf captured hardware, and he was doing the zombiosis thing to him. And then it, it's hinted at the end that this character um, perhaps is – civilian identity is moving into Dakota city with some technology. And it's, it's sort of clear to us, this guy, Luke Marcellus, this young tech genius uh, that some people are calling the Haitian Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, uh, or, or apparently it's, I, th- I think it's pretty obvious to us that he's this, this sort of tech zombie voodoo guy. Um, but it's definitely doesn't appear to be clear to to Curtis Metcalf. So uh, again, I'm trying to find the character's name because he was really interesting to me, um, and I'm sure it's Luke unique. Marcellus. Yeah, that's the that's the actual name of the his civilian identity. But I thought that there was a like Zombie Master or something. Uh, yeah, I just don't know if it ever says if he ever says what he calls himself. Uh, but he's talking about working with the necro code and um, talks about interfacing with a person's subconsciousness and all that. So yeah, maybe it he doesn't ever say what his his vi- sort of villainous identity name is. But I, I thought it was an interesting character. And again, I'm, I'm sure it's a version of um, of a previous milestone character from the first go round. I'm just I'm not really sure. Um, then the next story, again, they're characters I'm just not really familiar with. Uh, Mike and Nathan, I think their names are, but I'm, I'm just, I'm not, again, I'm not sure I'm not familiar enough with the, the characters. Every, every World Fades, it's called. But it is a very heart, heart, heartfelt story. And then the next one, I thought the art was absolutely fantastic. It stars Tech from Blood Syndicate, uh, and it's actually in the time between him leaving the army, but having gotten his powers, and him going back to Paris Island. So I thought that one was really strong. Uh, that one's by Julio Anta, who's a writer whose uh, image series uh, that he did last year I, I reviewed. So I wasn't surprised that that one was really strong. Uh, and then the next one is a, sort of about grief and finding things that you can hold on to and how, how sometimes mementos of the past can, can mean a lot to us. Uh, and that one starred Rocket. I thought that was pretty strong as well by Jerome Rett. Um, and then the next one dealt with Bang Babies in particular, and a guy who gained powers when that happened, but lost his son in the same event and how he's out for revenge. And again, teaming up static and rocket and their relationship and them trying to decide the best way to move forward. So that was pretty strong as well. The art may have been a little stronger than the the writing. I think it 
the pacing on that one could have been. Um, that's that's the hate you live. You're, you're referring yeah. to. Yeah. yeah, that's one by Jerome Rett. I think I, I yeah. inadvertently credited Jerome Rett for the one about m- mementos. Um, that wasn't Jerome Rett, actually. That one was written by Morgan Hampton, the the right, current writer of uh, of the Cyborg series. Uh, and then the f- next story um, dealt with Icon and how he was willing to do some work for the U.S. government during the Vietnam War for the agreement that they would leave him alone and how even though he was lied to and a lot of people were lied to in the Vietnam war and in that conflict, but ultimately you, you look for the silver lining, you look for the good that you're able to do. That one was written by Nathan uh, Cannon. And that, that one I felt was really strong. Anthony Fowler art, very fine lines, solid art there. And then the next one I really, really enjoyed probably my second favorite because it features the birth of static of Virgil Hawkins and his family. And it jumps forward in time Again, sh- showing throughout, and it's called family values, showing throughout how important family is, at least to this version of Virgil Hawkins, this version of Static, it's absolutely fantastic. You know, the first version, I think he was a, he was raised by his mother. His dad wasn't around anymore. She was a single parent. This time, I love that they chose to have a strong family. His dad's there, his mom, his sister. Um, so that one by Jordan Clark and Miguel C. Hernandez, I thought was really, really great. And the final one, My Brother's Keeper by Dorado Quick. First of all, Great Pencils by Charles Stewart III, and it stars um, this guy named Eben, whose brother has been kidnapped by some sort of evil organization, evil corporation. We're not exactly sure who it is, um, but they're basically <clears throat> exploiting bang babies. They're kidnapping them, studying them, and what have you. He has sort of shadow-based powers, and his name uh, – his brother's name is Adam Evans – his name's Ivan Evans, and he's out there looking for his brother, doing whatever he can to try to find them. So find his brother. It, it really strong art, really interesting character, um, a character who basically – like he breaks into one of these facilities, and there's other bang babies that are there in prison that are calling out to him, hey, help us, help us, help us. He's like, I'm not going to do – I'm not going to make this mistake my father did because his father used to try to help everybody, and it ended up leading to his father's death. He's like, I only care about myself. He's really focused on saving his brother to the detriment of everybody else. So you get in his way, look out. So I thought that one was really strong as well. And again, <laughs> the art by, uh, the line work by Charles Stewart, the third was, was really fantastic. So I expect we'll see more of this Eben character somewhere in the pages of milestone, even though, like I said, these aren't necessarily in continuity, uh, really strong work by, uh, by Dorado quick. And then, yeah, you take the time to buy this. You take the time to read it. Uh, again, take a look at those bios. Everybody has a picture. It gives a little uh, description of what they've done so far, and and you know, schooling and education, and and you know where they hope to go in the future. So overall, I thought it was a pretty strong, um, pretty strong showing. Yeah, and again, I, that, that milestone I, initiative was was a very worthwhile endeavor for DC. Yeah, I, I just a couple comments I have is. Uh, Reginald Hudlin at the, at the forward, he talked about how these stories aren't in continuity. But, you know, I, I just want to make a commentary on, on that aspect of it because, you know, what I kept, I couldn't help thinking, like I only read the first two stories and I thought they were good. And, and I thought both those first two stories, and I can't speak for the rest of it, but I suspect every single story in this compilation is better than every single Lazarus planet uh, offshoot story that we got, that we were subjected to painfully, uh, which are stories that were 
A, terrible, and B, in all of them, in continuity, unfortunately. Uh, I would have, uh, I wish that Reginald Hudlin would have uh, made these stories or had the writers put these in continuity in the Milestone universe. I think they should have just went ahead and done that. I understand that it's not the purpose of this. It's the new talent showcase. But quite frankly, I don't think it takes particularly a lot of talent to, to uh, uh, own up on, on, on reading background for the Milestone universe. There's not, it's not like there's a lot of comics to read. Uh, I mean, really, to get, to get own up on what the current continuity is. Uh, because all these writers, you know, at least, well, the two stories that I read, I, I mean, this is fun. You and I enjoy reading the Milestone universe. We're one of the probably two very few reviewers that actually read them. Okay, now, granted, I never had time to read this, but I'm going to read it all. And I'm going to buy, it's on my pull list. It's on my pull list because it's 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 a new universe. It's a well-structured stru- universe. And now it does have new writers. And we got to give these new writers a chance. And we can be critical of new writers. But they're learning the ropes. But I, I just, uh, I think there's no reason why if they're learning the ropes, put them into continuity. Put them into continuity. Do that. I think they're, you know, they're, they're, they, can't any be, they can't be any worse than what, what DC threw some even seasoned writers on the Lazarus Planet backups, as an example. And they did a, and I thought they did a, a subpar job for the most part. So uh, that's just my commentary. But, you know, the talent, I love the way they're promoting them. I mean, pictures of all the writers in the back. That's how you promote talent. That's how you promote it. And let the let the quality speak for itself. Let the quality speak for itself. And at least for the first two stories, it does. And it sounds like you enjoyed the rest of it. So I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. Yeah, my, my thought probably is why they didn't have it in continuity is just because it was such a long runway. These are short stories. These writers worked on them for 10 months. So yeah. had they read everything that came out, you know, for the current iteration of Milestone at the beginning and then wrote their story, by the time the story came out now, there's something that might have changed. So I think that's why they told them, don't worry about what continuity is. Because again, that you know, that's typically not going to be the same sort of runway. You're, you're not going to have 10 months for a short story. But I, I don't know how often, you know, the Milestone Initiative got to meet up and, or, you know, again, 10 months is a really long time. So I got to imagine that's why they chose to not have it in continuity or at least give themselves that that out. Because if you'd say uh, continuity and then, you know, they write something that doesn't necessarily make sense and then they have people calling, you know, calling them out on that, that's kind of disheartening as a, as a writer, you know, if, if you write something really good that you're really proud of and then you're getting a bunch of crap because – it doesn't necessarily fit in continuity. Pro- probably don't need to subject writers to that right off the bat. Yeah. Uh, and again, that, that's purely speculation on my part, whether that's why they chose to say, yes, they're not in, in continuity. It's just, it's just my guess. Um, but yeah, typically, you're, that's not what you're going to see. You're not going to see 10 months of time for a, you know, a short story. That's just, it's, it's not realistic, obviously. Publisher couldn't stay in business if it took that long to get, uh, to get every every book out. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on up next. I don't, don't imagine it's going to take that long to cover this. Uh, no pun intended. The Joker uncovered number one. Um, and I saw an article on a comic site. that was like, DC's finally done it. It's a cover of uh, a comic of covers. I'm like, why are you talking about this? Like, this is the first time this has happened. They did this with Harley Quinn a few months ago. So maybe you missed that, but, um, anyway, it's the Joker uncovered and it's literally just a comic book with a bunch of covers, variant covers of different Joker titles. 
there's a few pages interspersed here or there um, with the Joker breaking the fourth wall, talking to us and, and talking about these various covers. So, um, I mean, some of them are nice to look at. I'm not, again, I'm not the biggest Joker fan as fans of the longtime listeners of the podcast will know. So uh, for me, this was kind of just flipped through and uh, didn't take me too long to consume this. So I don't know anything to add Rocky. Well, you know, uh, it's, it, it's, it's actually, in my view, it's a testament of just how, uh, frankly, it's a testament to how bad the comic book industry has gotten that because uh, that, that they have to collect these covers and that uh, because a lot of these covers you can't buy for regular price because they might be on a ratio variant because there's too many ratio variants and there's too many variant covers and they're overpriced. And it's sad. It's, I, I, think it's, I think it's really sad that you, we got, we're paying money. I mean, and, and especially if they're, if, they're, if they're reprints of covers – why is I, I would hope that this is this comic book a dollar? Is this I hope this comic book's only a dollar, but I suspect it's probably three ninety nine. It might even be four ninety nine or five ninety nine. Why? It's just a bunch of covers. Whoop de doo. Covers which, when they first came out, had nothing to do with the content of the comic. Uh, it's just to show off the art, and I get that. But uh, it's just you know I'm venting. I I, I rant about uh, varying covers and ratio covers, and, and of course I am I'm I'm a little bit hypocrite as well because I do occasionally buy them, of course. But it I don't like I don't like the fact that I occasionally buy them and make a make a hypocrite out of myself. So I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, again, no way it's a dollar. Um, I I'll sort of play devil's advocate. I mean there may be people that that want some of these covers and couldn't afford them because they were ratios. So this is a way for them to, to have them, um, but it's not the same, you know, it's, it's not the same. Uh, but if you want to be able to have the, the artwork to look at, if you're a Joker fan uh, or if you're a fan of some of these artists, maybe you want to pick this up. I'm a huge Lee Bermejo fan. I'm still not picking this up um, because I just don't care much for the Joker. But again, this is a way for people that may not have been able to get these covers to, to get them. So, all right, moving on. Batman 136, Dusk Till Dawn, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Bellin Ortega, colors by Tameo More, lettered by Clayton Cowles. There also is uh, a backup story. It's also written by Chip Zdarsky. Um, I guess it kind of stars Batman, but kind of more <laughs> than R. Uh, the art is by Jorge Corona, colors by Ivan Placencia, letters by Clayton Cowles. I don't know if it's purposeful from... Uh, Corona, but we get a lot less of that ink splatter that I always complained about that he did on uh, Batgirls. He still does it here. Uh, in a way, it works here a lot better, especially when it's Zurinar in the Batcave building things and there's all kinds of detritus and whatnot. So it sort of works a little better. Um, but the art feels more mature. The line work feels a little, little more developed. Um, so that that's fine. Uh, the, the main story focuses on Bruce. He's back from his journey through the multiverse that we saw last issue. Uh, he's hiding the fact that he lost his hand, robot hand. He has a robot hand now. Um, I, I had sort of forgotten that or maybe didn't even notice it that much. I have to admit to not noticing how big of a deal it was because all of a sudden now it's a huge deal that he lost his hand and he's hiding it from the rest of his family. And I was like, wait, he lost his hand? And there's even a little blurb or something has happened in 134. I literally went back to issue 134, uh, you know, where supposedly he lost his hand to this, uh, you know, alternate 
universe ghost maker. And I, I flipped through and found the, the panel where the hand was cut off. And I was like, huh, I kind of missed that the first time. And then in what, and I'm kicking myself. Cause then in one thirty five, uh, it, it's very apparent that he's lost his hand, Batman 900 legacy number. It's very apparent. He lost his hand. He's walking around. It's bandaged up. He, he puts like a, just kind of almost like a mace like opera uh, apparatus on it at one point. And then when he's traveling to the different multiverses, uh, it's kind of the old version, the legends of the dark Knight, like the first Frank Miller legends, of the dark Knight version of Batman that gives him the robot hand. Um, and it was so like obvious and important, <laughs> but it wasn't necessarily commented on as, as much as I would have expected it to be until we get to this issue and it's a focus. And then I was like, wait, how did I miss that? And again, I go, went and flipped back through and I'm like, wow. Yeah. It's right there. How come it never really registered for me? So yeah, Batman has a robot hand. He's hiding it from the rest of the bat family. And it's clear that even though he's been uh, examined here by, uh, by Mr. Terrific, by Michael Holt, um, that there's, there's still something, he's still not healed, but yet partly because I think of what he went through during that trip and how there's multiversal versions of the jokers out there right now, he's not willing to rest even to the point where he's disabled the health monitoring systems in his suit and Oracle asked him at one point and he doesn't respond. He just thinks to himself, you know, I can't afford to not be Batman. I need to be out here right now. Um, even though, his body, I don't know, might be on the verge of like shutting down. Maybe that's the path that Zadarsky is going to take him down. I, I'm not sure. But this does feel like it's going in more of a little sort of a street level or more personal um, direction for the story, which is kind of what I expected Zadarsky to do with Batman from the start. But instead, we got Batman jumping off the moon and doing crazy, fantastical things. Um so I don't know, maybe now we're getting to the street level stuff. I'm not sure, but I thought it was an okay issue. Um, probably one of my more liked issues with that tone, with it feeling like it's going to be a little more personal. Um, and Batman does, you know, he, he's asking for developments. Hey, what happened while I was gone? He learns about the penguin twins. And in fact, he learns in this issue that he didn't really kill the penguin, um, which Selena knew, but didn't tell him. And so there's that aspect of it as well when you want to talk about getting into um, some emotion. Uh, I like the Bell and Ortega art in terms of line work and storytelling. Uh, I don't know that the tone of the art is is really suiting the story. I feel like it's something that, that maybe needs a little... I'm not sure. The art that Bellin does feels a little more animated to me, like animation style, a little more I don't know, happy and vibrant and lighter. And that's not, that's not what this, this story is. So I wonder if it was the best choice artistically, but technically the art is fantastic. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Zur and R. Um, I'm really starting to like that version of Batman. So what were your thoughts on the, uh, the, the issue, Rocky? I, I really enjoyed this. I thought the art was fantastic. I, I love this artistic style. It, it works for me. Uh, uh, there's some major revelations here. Uh, for one thing, I mean, Zerna, like, I, I'm, I'm wondering what is, Bruce Wayne seems to be compromised here. He's back from the other universe, but clearly, who's in charge of, his, of the body here? Is it Bruce Wayne or is it Zerna? Zerna actually tells Bruce Wayne in the Battle of the Minds that uh, Zerna tells him, he goes, you need me. You need me for what's coming. Well, what's coming? What does Zerna know that Batman doesn't? 
What does the Zernoff side of Batman's psyche know that Batman doesn't? Well, that's hinted at, of course, in the backup, because it's also hinted at in the main story, because Selina never told Batman, Selina never told Batman that Penguin is actually still alive until this issue. Well, it was because Penguin was believed to be killed that Failsafe was activated in the first place. So when Failsafe finds out that the Penguin has in fact not been killed, why did Failsafe get activated in the first place? Well, this is directly linked to the backup, which we have to mention because the backup has Zerna programming. It shows the background of Zerna programming Failsafe and basically saying, look, if you're 95% certain that Batman has killed someone, you're activated. And then Failsafe says, fine, okay, I'm activated if I'm 95% sure if Batman's killed somebody. Of course, the 5% was the reality. Penguin's still alive. But then in the backup, Failsafe asks Zerna, well, what do I do after I kill Batman? Well, And that's where the backup ends. Well, Zerna says, well, I'm going to come back and program you. So what we don't know is, where is, first of all, where is Failsafe? Where did Failsafe go? What was Failsafe's programming? Zerna programmed Failsafe. Well, where's Failsafe now? Failsafe completed his programming, i.e. he killed Batman. But did he, in fact, complete his programming? What was the default? After he kills Batman, what was Failsafe to do? That's something we still need to discover. And what's particularly interesting here is that I'm questioning, is, is Chip Sardaski, is he played, is he completely fooled all of us? Has this entire story been complete misdirection? The main story ends here with Bruce Wayne hallucinating his entire Batman family burning to death in front of him. Is, is this a massive dream? Who's in control of the psyche? Is it Zerna? Was Batman ever in control? Is is, is this going to be like the old episode of Dallas that wakes up and this has all been a dream? God forbid. I don't think Zerdowski would do that. But I'm really curious to see, okay, now, what happened here? Zerna, I, I don't, I think the, the Zerna Batman, the Batman of Zerna, I don't think he's surprised by what happened. I, I think maybe the Batman of Zerna is the mastermind behind all this. If he programmed Failsafe and he knows what's coming and Zerna is warning Batman, you need to be strong because you're weak now. You need to be strong because you don't know what's coming. What the hell is coming? What don't we know? I'm really curious. I'd love to know anybody's got a theory as to what uh, where this is headed. Or is Sardaski, he's got something close to his chest that he's going to uh, – is he going to pull the rug out from the readers here? Uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'm – I'm, and you can already see the seeds of Selena, of the Batman Catwoman war that's coming up. Selena, Batman is livid with Selena. She never told him. Selena never told Batman that Oswald Cobblepot is still alive, that he left the city and that his kids took over. Well, like, if, if Selena had told Batman that, well, then maybe Failsafe would know because Zorna would know and Failsafe wouldn't have been activated. But Selina didn't because she's still keeping secrets from Batman and their relationship is, of course, remains dysfunctional. And you got to wonder further if the future Batman Catwoman war, is that going to be Catwoman versus Batman or Catwoman versus the Batman of Zerna? I don't know. I don't know. I got all these questions, but I, I love I love the I love the questions I'm asking. And I just hope that the answers end up being interesting. So, yeah, I, I, I love this. This is uh, this is one of my favorite comics this week.
yeah, it was, like I said, really strong. Um, so we'll see where it goes from here. Uh, no, been a lot of creators, big name creators that have been shuffling around on books, but no, no hints of Zdarsky leaving Batman anytime soon. He is done with Daredevil, so maybe he's going to be focusing on Batman along with his creator on stuff for the foreseeable mm-hmm. future. We'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, Peacemaker tries hard issue two, trying even harder now. <laughs> Written by Kyle Stark, Steve Pugh is the illustrator, Jordi Belair on colors, Becca Carey on letters. Again, black label book, definitely not for the faint of heart. There's the uh, cover that homages Lethal Weapon to, which I thought was interesting. Um, but yeah, it was a fun issue. What do you think? I, I thought, well, this look. If you're a fan of the Peacemaker and the the Suicide Squad movie and the and the HBO series Peacemaker, this is actually this will be right up your alley. And uh, the writer uh, Kyle uh, Kyle Starks, I mean, really imitates the voice. Peacemaker has the same voice as the Peacemaker in the HBO series here, and. This is, I found this funny. There was a couple of laugh out loud moments for me. This is the peacemaker's been hired by the brain and Mala to extract or to uh, get a hold of Deathstroke's, Deathstroke's DNA. And at the end of last issue, we thought that would mean that Peacemaker would end up confronting Deathstroke this issue. That ends up not being the case. Uh, the Brain and the Mala just want Peacemaker. They consider him an idiot, a dunce. But, of course, Peacemaker doesn't know that they consider him a, a moron. And so they uh, – <laughs> uh, uh, the, the Brain basically uh, – the Brain and Mala basically they use him to get to a facility to break into a facility where they were, where Deathstroke's DNA is being kept. And ultimately it's, it's the journey they go through to get there. That's kind of funny because Peacemaker ends up being, you know, a bunch of school kids, you know, punk out uh, Peacemaker. There's kind of a funny scene where Peacemaker is looking at different helmets and one helmet actually makes a, (laughs) makes a guy get flaccid or, It'd be like getting if you every guy knows if you get doused with cold water, what happens to your private parts? There's one helmet that does that, and there's another helmet that is an F U C K beam and there's some there's some vulgarity here and there's a lot of jokes being being made by Peacemaker and by by the writer here in terms of what all these helmets do and a lot of them do crazy things, but you can we can only Speculate on the one helmet that does what I just mentioned is called shrinkage. There's another F helmet. Uh, I mean, again, it, the writer's trying to have fun with that here. The art's fantastic. Steve Bugue's art is fantastic. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, they, they fight this this demolition demolition team, and there's a lot of there's a lot of fisticuffs going on, and there's a lot of there's a lot of craziness. There's a lot of th- this actually feels like. I wish actually Harley Quinn was this refreshingly funny. This because this this is this is entertainment to me. This was entertainment. This was a fun read, and the art is fantastic. And at the end, of course, Peacemaker's made to look like a complete and utter fool, and he's uh, betrayed. He's betrayed by the brain and the mala, and it ends seemingly with Peacemaker looking like he's dead, but I'm sure that's not the case. And uh, we'll, we'll, you know, I think there's only one issue to go here. It's three issues long. So it's entertaining. This is fun. If you're a fan of Peacemaker HBO, uh, you probably definitely want to pick this up. And and I kudos to the covers. The kudos, covers here, are, are, the two covers are, are fantastic. So what do you think? Man, I, I loved it, right? Like, 
Again, I haven't seen the Suicide Squad movie. I haven't seen the Peacemaker TV show. But this is just, as you said, laugh out loud funny. It's just laugh out loud funny. And it's not just the, it's not just the Peacemaker being funny. It's Mashur Mala pretending not to speak English because he doesn't want to talk to Peacemaker. He's like, why would I want to talk to this, you know, imbecile? Uh, <laughs> but, but even if he does talk, that's what he uses. Uh, imbecile. He's like, you hear what this imbecile thinks honey is? You'll die from laughter. Like, why would I, this guy's just a waste of time, a waste of space. Um, so funny. But even when he does condescend to speak to him, he speaks to him only in French, pretends like he doesn't understand English. And, you know, you mentioned Peacekeeper talking about all the cr- different crazy helmets he has. Yeah, the only thing my dad ever gave me. And uh, in French, Monsieur Mala tells him, yeah, parents, they're the last ones that should have kids. Like, it's so... It's just that sort of sense of humor throughout the, the book. And then even at the end when Monsieur Mala betrays the Peacemaker uh, and then calls the brain, says, hey, you know, we got the DNA. Uh, you know, I'll be, be bringing it back to you. Uh the brain mentions, I'm keeping the dog. I, I find him delightful. I can't wait to pet him once I have hands again. Like, it's just absolutely <laughs> delightful. So you know the Peacemaker is not really dead, even though he took a uh, a blast from a Gatling gun to the back. You know he's going to recover from that. He's going to come after Mashur Mala and the brain. And it's just, it's just fun. Like the book is just fun throughout. It's completely ludicrous. It's completely um, just full of, of you know potty humor. Definitely not, for, definitely not for kids. Definitely for mature readers. But it's fantastic, and the Steve Pugh art is great. I certainly didn't ex- expect to see the demolition team here. They were played for laughs as well. Uh, one of them, in the midst of battle, is sitting there eating a sandwich, and the, the leader, Rosie the Riveter, is calling on him like, hey, come and help us out. He's like, man, you need to take it up with the union rep. Like, I, that's what I'm telling you. Like, Jack Hammer is the union rep. He's getting choked to death over here. They're like, yeah, sorry, can't help. And then uh, after the uh, – Peacemaker, Mashur Mala defeat everybody else. Uh, Peacemaker called, hey, hey, lunch break. Because that's the thing, right? Like this guy won't help because he's in the middle of uh, eating his lunch. I'm man, I, you know, I'm, I'm obligated or I'm, I'm mandated a 30 minute lunch break every four hours. Um, so, yeah, I love it. The Peacemaker's like, hey, lunch break. Why don't you tell us where the general keeps the valuables, right? Where this uh, DNA of Deathstroke <laughs> will be so it's just even one-liners like that. It's just really smart humor, really funny, and uh, I'm having a blast uh, with this. Never been a big Peacemaker fan. I per- don't know that I would enjoy the sort of tongue-in-cheek way that um, that he's portrayed in the movie and the TV show. But who knows? Maybe I would if it's if this is what it is, and you can accept it for that. And then yeah, I think you get a could get a lot of fun out of it. So, uh, all right, moving on. We have the Joker who stopped. Uh, the Joker, the man who stopped laughing, issue number nine from Matthew Rosenberg as the writer. Carmine Di Gian Domenico is the artist, Ramulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. Backup is also written by Matthew Rosenberg, Francesco Francavia on art, lettering by Tom Napolitano. Um, things seem like they're starting to come together. Um, I love the interaction between one of the Jokers and Killer Croc in this issue. Killer Croc really tells it like it is. He, he, my feeling of how people really feel about the Joker, right? We have the one out in L.A. He's on his way back. He's only a few hundred miles from Gotham City. Then we have the one that stayed in Gotham City that was pretty badly wounded at one point. He's now well on his way to recovery. He knows the other one is coming back. He's the one that's in the sewers fighting against, uh, fighting with uh, Killer Croc. And Killer Croc, like I said, he just tells it like it is. He goes, you know what? You might be the real Joker. He might be the real Joker. 
we know you guys are headed toward this collision course and you know who the real Joker will be. It'll be the one that survives. But at the end of the day, you know what? Nobody fucking cares who the real Joker is. Nobody likes you, whether you're the real Joker or he's the real Joker. Nobody likes the Joker. I absolutely love it. Killer Croc is, is saying it like it is. It's how I feel about the Joker. You think that you're feared and, you know, respected by the other criminals in Gotham and you're, you're some sort of a leader in the villain side. No, that's not the case at all. Everybody knows you're crazy. Everybody hates you. Nobody trusts you. Nobody wants you around. That, that's exactly how I feel about the Joker. Like, get him out of here. We don't care. And the villains don't care either. And it, it's it's great to hear that, right? Because so often in the past, before the Joker was power crept and before he was all over the place, you did see him team up with other villains once in a while. And it was a little more of like a brotherhood, if you will. It's not like that anymore. And this is Killer Croc basically giving voice to that. So, uh, so I really appreciated that. We also saw uh, the Ravager. Deathstroke's daughter finished her plan to break Jason Todd out of um, out of prison, basically, or out of jail. Gotham City PD were transporting him from the Gotham City Peace, uh, Gotham City Police Department headquarters downtown to Blackgate. She rescues him, um, and we know that he's out to to capture the Joker as well. So overall, I thought it was a pretty strong issue. Uh, at times, this series has been a little confusing. I'll say. And it seems like it's starting to come together and I'm hoping it all comes together in the end really well. It may take a reread to really understand what's going on. But, uh, you know, I've mentioned before the Joker could go from being one of my most hated characters to a character that I find really interesting and really like if somebody could just explain to me this three Jokers thing and make it make sense. Uh, and if it's interesting, then, you know, I may stop complaining about the Joker being all over the place all the time. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, as far as the backup goes, interesting as well. Kind of sees Gordon loses lose his mind. Um, you know, kind of showcases the fact that Joker can get under your skin. Basically, in the backup, the Joker f- falls. He falls from a bridge, hits you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet, hits the water. Batgirl saying he's dead. The Joker doesn't believe it. Even when they find uh, uh, Jim Gordon doesn't believe it. Even when they fish the body out of the river, and it's there in front of him, he's like, "Nope, that's a fake." That's, that's not the real Joker, uh, and he sort of loses it. Loses it. Um, so it's kind of interesting uh, to the point in the end he he becomes he becomes, sort of becomes the Joker. He's like, I, I have to draw him out. I have to get inside his head. And so he dresses himself up to look like the Joker. So pretty interesting. Even even from beyond the grave, the Joker manages to get the last laugh on, on Jim Gordon. And you sort of understand what, how that could happen, right? Like that was a big premise of the previous Joker series how the Joker had affected Jim Gordon so much, uh, you know, at every turn, he was uh, a detriment to the people that Jim Gordon loved and trusted. And uh, so you could see how something like this could happen. So uh, interesting, interesting backup. What were your thoughts on, uh, on both stories? Well, I, I, I've, I've, I've sort of zoned out of the main story. I think a couple issues ago, uh, it's, it's just, it's, to me, it just feels like it's dragged on and on. And I've, I, I really, I've stopped caring which is the actual Joker or the real Joker. Uh, artistically, I actually, particularly reading this issue, I actually, I, I, I think the month to month nature of the story has not helped this kind of narrative. I actually, 
I have I have actually forgotten the differences between these two jokers. One of I don't even know which one of these was the one that was shot in the head and which one was. I I'm, I'm still not I I I've long since forgot. And I just don't really care to go back and and read it. Probably if I read this all as a trade, it would be better. But this is six issues. This is going to be six issues too long. We're still at issue nine. And there's I can't believe there's still going to be three more issues that have to be filled in here. But if we're going to get stories like side side tracks, like Manhunter shows up or or then Jason Rose shows up and, and frees Jason Todd. Why? The, now we got the two jokers and and then and even the other villains and the other villains of Gotham City I, I think they're insulted a little bit or I think they're they're not they're done a disservice with this story but as if they're just gonna they're they're taking sides you know some some of the villains are siding with one joker some are siding with the other joker uh, it just seems it just seems kind of silly and it, it and why why are they doing that? And he, I guess both jokers are promising to pay them for their help. Okay, I, I, I guess. I guess the Joker always finds a way to get rich and pay people who work for him. But, you know, just, I don't know. It just, I don't know. I, I lost it. I, I lost it. The, the central conceit of this story has long since evaporated for me. The central conceit of, I mean, it was a really cool idea at the beginning that we had over oh, this other guy that we, you know, I thought it was really cool that a, a, some victim, a victim at a bank with a bag over his head, a hostage, gets shot in the head and wakes up thinking he's the Joker, but he isn't. Uh, I, following that story, I thought I was waiting for a compelling story that we could follow someone we know who isn't the Joker, but thinks he is. I think that would be a cool story as opposed to the one we've gotten, which is one where both are legitimately think they're the Joker and... I don't know where this story is going and I, I just I just stopped caring. And uh, I'm not saying, it may, you know, maybe the ending will be nailed. But even, even if even if Rosenberg nails the landing on this, uh, the airstrip's too long. Simple as that. And as far as the end, the end uh, I love Frank Avella's art. Uh, I could stare at his pictures and his artistic style all day. Uh, I like I like thematically what the story says in the backup. The idea that how many how, how many people who who become obsessed with the Joker, particularly Jim Gordon or Batman. They always get obsessed with taking Joker down. Even his arch enemies get obsessed with taking him down and defeating him, et cetera, et cetera. And of course they always end up becoming him. Be, beware if you go after that, you know, if you go after too hard, something sooner or later, if you fight crime, you're going to become the criminal. And of course, uh, symbolically, you know, metaphorically, that's exactly what uh, Jim Gordon becomes at the end. He becomes the very Joker clown that he's obsessed with taking down. So I thought, that it actually had a good, I think, metaphorical element uh, the backup. But uh, again, I, I I stopped collecting this. I, I took this off my pull list about four or five issues ago, actually. And uh, I just, you know, I, I can't see myself putting it back on anytime soon. So you won't go back, and you said even if it nails the landing. So even even if you no, enjoy I, the I, final, no, I, and I, I can't. No, I mean, there's a, there's a couple where if uh, just because you nail the landing, I mean, it doesn't mean I I can't. You know, I you you miss it along the way. I mean, there's uh, it sort of reminds me a little bit. It's the exact opposite. I've I've had that experience a few times where I've I, I love the journey, but I I don't like the ending. You know, like uh, why the last man? I love the journey. I love the stories. I thought it had a terrible ending. You know, uh, that's where I think Sag is headed for is a terrible ending. But that's another topic. But you know, this is the opposite. This is this 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 is way too long story. Yeah, I. I it, it, had so much potential and it just it's 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 lost me as a reader and it hasn't pulled me back it hasn't pulled me back in yet
but we'll we'll see. Hey, look, yeah. I'll, I'll put my foot in my mouth if I have to. But yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It could pull you back in, and you could be like, well, because I mean, the thing is about Matthew Rosenberg. I think he knows he's such a huge fan of the DCU, and but his style of writing can be sort of I don't want to say abstract, but it it can be sort of oblique at times. Like he comes at it from a different angle. I just have a feeling if he nails the land and I go back, you go back and reread it can, some of the things that didn't make sense at the time could start to make sense, but I don't know. I, I could, I could entirely be giving him too much credit. So I guess we'll see, but that's all right. We don't necessarily agree on that one. I have a feeling we're not going to agree on this one either. Up next, <laughs> Dark Steel number 11 written by Tom Taylor. Art is by Yasmin Putri. Uh, colors by Arif Prianto letters by Wes Abbott. We're going to get your thoughts first, but before we do, I'm just going to, say one thing which is <laughs> fuck amanda waller <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll give more of a review you know than just yeah. that but i could just say those two three words i guess and leave yeah. it at that well um, you yeah you you and i have uh i think it was a couple of weeks ago where uh we actually more than a couple of weeks ago more than once over the Amanda Waller's she's everywhere. She's been absolutely everywhere in the DC movies and uh, every comic. Uh, there was a period of time where Deathstroke was overused and their Joker's overused. And now Amanda Waller just, it seems to be Amanda Waller's time for being overused in every continuity. I mean, this is an out of continuity, not in the mainstream. Music. It's Amanda Waller on earth. We, we, if we end up on earth three, it was Amanda Waller. I mean, wherever we end up, it was Amanda Waller. I mean, you know, I mean, even, even in the, there's a we have a black label Suicide Squad book, uh, Suicide Squad and Wildstorm. Who's the bad guy? Amanda Waller. I mean, Amanda Waller is, is she's a gift that keeps on giving. Uh, so if you don't like Amanda Waller, uh, you might not be a particular big fan of the Dawn of the DCU because the big bad of the Dawn of the DCU is Amanda Waller, who is currently trying to get all the villains to kill as many heroes as possible. She's handing out pardons like Halloween candy, apparently. So, but you got to kill a hero. Uh, but, you know, it all comes down to the story. We'll see how it turns out. But in this story, Dark Knights of Steel, issue 11 of 12, things are finally starting to come together. All the various all the various houses of the kingdoms, the, the kingdom of El, the, the, the Amazons, the, the, the King, King Pierce, uh, which is, you know, uh, the, the thunder and lightning uh, land and, uh, and, and Constantine and uh, all of these, all of these heroes, all of these heroic kingdoms are coming together finally understanding that they have one common enemy, the white Martians, uh, who are led by this individual called uh, Protex. Uh, and Protex is the, he's a white Martian. And of course, Martian Manhunter is actually Alfred. Martian Manhunter, when he came to this earth, uh, disguised himself as Alfred and befriended uh, Bruce Wayne, who was the uh, half-brother of Kal-El. And of course, uh, this series started off so well because there was so much misdirection. We thought it was a very real possibility that Kal-El might be evil. And uh, did did Tom Taylor pull another Injustice Superman? You know, uh, Kal-El, he's the evil king here. But no, it ended up to be all misdirection. And and I, I can't help but to be a little bit disappointed in just how how happy everybody is. Everybody who is good is good. They're, everybody who we thought was good is good. And everybody who we could assume would be an asshole is an asshole. And, of course, that's Amanda Waller. She betrays the team. Amanda Waller was uh, the head of security for uh, Queen Laura. Laura, And, uh, of course, she's going to end up being the one who betrays and makes a, makes a deal with uh, Protex here at the end. 
But, you know, it, one of the criticisms of Tom Taylor, and not everyone agrees with this, but one of the criticisms, uh, I've said it and some others have said, certainly said it, that it, he's Nightwing is a little bit too happy all the time. I mean, we, we wanted we wanted a feel good book, but we got great character moments. But where's the plot? You know, everyone's getting along. Nightwing, it's so goody, goody, goody two shoes. Uh, it's so convenient uh, that, that the plots aren't sophisticated, but you got great character work to make up for it. As Teen Titans, the first issue of uh, the Titans, you know, my God, Wally West dies and it still kind of feels like a happy-go-lucky issue. By the way, Flash is dead in it. Um, and and so here we have everyone, Every it ends up, everybody is now getting along. Everybody we thought was good. Superman is good. Kal-El is good. Bruce is good. Wonder Woman is good. They're all going to team up. Cal, Kal-El, of course, Prince Kal-El, it really is. He's a charming, he's just a great guy. He's releasing all the prisoners that uh, his mother, his his King Jor-El and Queen Laura, they imprisoned the Flash, they imprisoned, uh, he, he even let Green Arrow go, who shot and killed, uh, shot, killed his father, King Jor-El, in the eye. let them go because he was, because Green Arrow was manipulated, Oliver Queen in this, uh, in Dark Knights of Steel was manipulated in the killing of his father. And so all is forgiven. Of course, the only one who is unforgiving, the only one who is cynical is is Amanda Waller. And I got to be honest, ironically enough, Amanda Waller is the only character in this issue that I for sure respect. And, I, and, and, I'm, and it's a character that I'm getting sick of, but at least Amanda Waller is, is I think, understandably cynical. And at least, like, somebody's got to be a, somebody's got to betray somebody in this issue i mean everybody's acting true to form there's it where's the misdirection here are we going to get any mister we got it i guess we got it up front we got it up front uh, and now now it's all done now now we're leading into the 12th issue and we're going to have battles and everything else and it's probably going to end on a cliffhanger but i was really hoping for a little bit more i wanted the plot to be a little bit more unpredictable this was this is too convenient for me. And I guess I'm being harsh. By the way, I, I've really enjoyed the journey. This might be one where I love the journey. I've enjoyed the journey. But 11 and 12 might be meh endings. But uh, I'm being harsh on this maybe a little because I, I do love this series. I recommend it. I recommend it. And uh, I so I'm being a little bit hypocritical here, but I'm just... I'm just being harsh. I I got high standards for Tom Taylor, and I want I want I want him to nail the plots as much as he nails the characterizations. So you got he's got the characters down pat. Uh, the art here is fantastic. Uh, shout out to uh, Pucci and Prianto, and the color is fantastic. But uh, that's my mini rant. So uh, uh, tell me how you feel about Amanda Waller. Uh, you you like that character, right? Oh my God! <laughs> enough already. Absolutely enough. She. It, can we say she's an out-and-out villain now, please? Can we just – everybody uses her in that way. <laughs> oh, I can't stand her. She's 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 going to surpass the Joker as my most hated character, 100%. <laughs> she may already have if I sit here and, and think about it long enough. Uh, but I'm a little surprised. I, I expected you to sing the praises. A lot of the issues that you have with this are the same things that I'm having in addition to – when was the last time we had an issue of this? Two months? Three months? <laughs> this has completely lost all momentum yeah. with these late issues. It has complete – and I might be willing more to forgive some of the things you're talking about with the convenience of the plot and a little bit of the issues with the pacing and, and sort of the up and down tone 
you know, I don't think you necessarily touched on that. The up and down tone of the series overall, if it weren't for the lateness, when you add in the lateness, it just becomes a bridge too far for me. And it's like, I just want this to be over, honestly. Like, remember how popular it was that they were doing spinoffs and, you know, anthologies and everything tied into this world. I don't hear anyone talking about this anymore because it just doesn't come out in a timely fashion. And it's, it's disappointing. It really is. Um, but yeah, the, the overall tone, I mean, this book has been so up and down, like, oh, it's this cool fantasy version of the DCU and, and, you know, really cool. And there's foreboding, uh, foreshadowing of things to come, who is the green man and all that kind of evil stuff or whatever. And then, there's betrayal and it feels very much sort of in that game of Thrones. I, I'm speculating. I never have watched game of Thrones, but that sort of, <laughs> that sort of storytelling where people are backstabbing and betraying and that sort of thing. Um, and, but then, you know, when you find out it's white Martians, it's like, Oh, well that makes sense with the shape shifting and what have you, but it feels a little bit ex deus machina and there were no clues whatsoever about the white Martians. And I guess that's okay. We didn't really have a chance to figure it out because there weren't really clues dropped. I love, again, this idea of Alfred as a, as a different character, this time, John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, just like we had Alfred becoming the specter also written by Tom Taylor. But at some point it becomes a little too much, right? Like Alfred needs to be Alfred. Every, Alfred can't be in every different, you know, different multiversal version of the DC universe. Alfred can't, what is Alfred going to be Superman? Is Alfred going to be um, Jor-El in, in some other version? Like it starts to get a little tropey. Um, you're right about the art and the colors. It's really, really good. And reading this all together, you may, you may just enjoy it. It may be like a fun kind of popcorn sort of story that maybe is not that memorable, but you just enjoy it for what it is when everything is said and done. But yeah, my biggest, my biggest um, complaint is just, the, the schedule, the schedule has robbed this of any momentum. And I, I sort of don't really care anymore. I just want it to be over. I just want it to be over. And I feel like even going back and reading it all together, it's still going to feel choppy, right? Just the way that it was constructed. Because again, we, we had the way that it started out and it felt like it was moving along at a certain pace. And then uh, Tom Taylor started throwing us all those cur- these curveballs. And, and that was interesting enough, but then we'd take a break from that and then we'd focus on Oh, we're going to have an issue that's just about this world's version of Mon Pa Kent and the Titans, and th- we haven't seen them since. And so, yeah, it just became like, all right, this is Tom Taylor wanting to show us as many medieval versions of different DC characters as we can. Um, and that might be not be completely fair, but uh, you know, a chance for him to do that, sort of at the expense of keeping the pacing and the momentum of the story moving forward. And I, I, again, I'm not pointing the finger and blaming anybody for why this is late. I have no idea if it was script wise, art wise. I have no insight into that whatsoever, but I've said it a thousand times, if not more. If you can't keep to a regular schedule, then delay the launch of the book because there's no quicker way to kill sales and to kill reader interest than to have books come out months and months after, especially for the last two issues, you know, to have them come out months and months after. I'm sorry. There's, we re- maybe if somebody who only reads Tom Taylor stuff can keep track and can remember how the last what happened in the previous issue and and how it made them feel or whatever. Rocky and myself, we read way too many comics to be able to remember what happened. I mean, <laughs> I was just talking about Batman. Batman is, hasn't even been late, and I still had to go back and look at the previous two issues um, to see about him losing his hand and, and whatnot. So again, it's just 
I'm not, I'm not blaming anybody, but DC got to do a better job of staying on schedule if you want these books to be to be good. And maybe you don't care. Maybe you just know this is going to sell really well in a trade when it's all collected, and that's what you're more focused on. Um, but yeah, you're doing a disservice to your monthly readers. So, just my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, up next, Steelworks number one. Uh, and you know, before we get to Steelworks number one, I'll, I'll say one other thing about. Dark Knights of Steel 11. Fuck Amanda Waller. <laughs> B word. Uh, anyway, Steelworks number one. Uh, written by Mark, Michael Dorn, right? So Worf from, from Star Trek The Next Generation. That's who's writing this. Uh, Sammy Basri is the artist. Andrew Dollhouse on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, been saying recently as we've been getting the Steel backups in action comics that I'm not the biggest Steel fan. Uh, that being said, I love the tone that Michael Dorn is giving us here. Um, I love – I had completely forgotten that – and I can't even remember. I think it might have been in the Superwoman title. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Phil Jimenez did that showed us a relationship between Lana Lang and, and John Henry Irons. Yeah. I love them. I love them together as a couple. That's fantastic. Um, you know, there was always the – sort of the triangle, the classic triangle between Lana and Lois Lane and Superman. Uh, and that can't really exist anymore with Superman and Lois being married. So pairing her off with John Henry Irons, I, I love it. I love that Dorn has chosen to uh, to make that a part of his story. Uh, and I, I just like the tone that he's giving John Henry Irons. It may come across at times as a little expository, right, with John Henry explaining to Natasha sort of his philosophy and what he wants to do. But I'm going to forgive that a little bit. Number one, because Michael Dorn is, you know, newer to writing comics. As far as I know, this is the first comic he's written. That may not be the case. He is a writer. I know he's written other things. Um, and I think he's done some directing too uh, in the TV world. Um, but I'm going to forgive it because number one, Michael Dorn, even if he has written comics, he hasn't written a lot of them. So he's going to get better the more he does it. Uh, and he's a super intelligent guy. I have complete faith in him. Very talented. The other thing is it makes it very new reader friendly. Like if somebody's jumping on this that may not be that familiar with Steel or DC as a whole, just maybe they're reading it because they're a Star Trek fan and love Michael Dorn or just love Michael Dorn in general and they're jumping on this. So I, I so I don't mind, you know, being having the dialogue be feel like I'm being spoon fed a little bit. I, it's not necessary for me, but I recognize it may be for for some other people. So I'm willing to forgive that. Uh, and yeah, bringing in. Lana Lang and that relationship is, is really great. The art by Sammy Basri is fantastic. This villain that I'm assuming is going to be named Stax because that's the last name of the, or sorry, not Stax. Uh, Stax is the name of the, the driver. Um, Mr. Carey is the, the name of the villain who has, who blames John Henry Irons for sort of Henry Irons for sort of his lot in life because of what Irons did in exposing the corruption to his former company. Um, and, and he's recruited by this guy, Charles, Charles Walker III, who feels like a little bit of a sort of a Lex Luthor analog. So we'll see how that all plays out, uh, what powers he's given. And we know he's going to try to uh, to take out John Henry Irons. That's really interesting to me. So there's a lot here to unpack in the first issue. But again, I think Dorn did a good job of making it new reader friendly. And the art and colors are absolutely fantastic. I, I was – I wouldn't say – I had low expectations for this, but based on the backups that we have had this focused on steelworks in the, in the uh, pages of action comics, 
I, I wasn't excited, right? Because those stories didn't really excite me. It just, they, there was no hook. Um, this to me has a couple hooks. It has the Lana Lang, John Henry Irons relationship, which I find to be interesting. And then this new villain uh, and the fact that he holds a grudge, but he, and even though he holds a grudge to his, uh, to his credit, he tells this Charles Walker, the third guy, when Charles Walker's like, I'm going to give you a chance to get revenge on steel. He's like, I don't want anything to do with any of that. Uh, he's like, no, let, you know, let me out of here. I, I just, I don't want to, I just like, how, how is getting revenge on John Henry Irons going to bring back my wife that I lost? Right. Like, so part of the reason he blames Irons is because he, because of what Irons, John Henry Irons did in exposing the, the, uh, the corruption at the, the, the former company that he worked at was that uh, this guy lost his, Mr. Carey lost his job. And then he didn't have uh, health insurance to help pay for his wife's care when she got ill. Right. So you, it's not really John Henry Irons fault, but this, you can understand why the guy would have resentment. It, it feels very real. Uh, it's very realistic what Dorn has done here. Uh, but again, I love the fact that Henry or Carey rather doesn't just dive in and go, yeah, Charles Walker, give me power. I'll go and, and kill John Henry Irons, whatever. No, instead he's like, how's that going to bring my wife back? Like my life is already ruined. What good is it going to do to ruin somebody else? It's like, th there's some realism there. He's not leaning into the trope, right? Like the, the cyborg Superman trope, if you will, uh, Hank Henshaw blaming, you know, unrealistically blaming everything on, on Superman for his lot in life. So I did enjoy that as well. So again, the hook of this new villain, whoever it might be, the Lana Lang, John Henry Irons relationship. And then the other thing is just the, this art, like I said, Bosri's art, Line work, absolutely fantastic. Storytelling, colors, really, really amazing. So I'm actually excited. I can't, I can't wait for issue number two. This was so unexpected. Um, so I'm really, really glad that uh, Michael Dorn is writing this because, yeah, fantastic first issue. Give him all the credit. Uh, what were your thoughts? Well, I like I like the potential science fiction element that uh, Michael uh, Dorn is playing with here. The idea that. Uh, the idea that Metropolis has been attacked and destroyed so many times that, you know, I mean, there there is some danger to living in Metropolis. Probably, now, of course, probably Gotham City is the number one most dangerous city to live in in the DC universe. We could probably all agree on that. But let's face it, Metropolis is not a particularly safe pl uh, place to live either. And in fact, there's three pages at the end of this story, uh, which go through a critical, severe and moderate phase which show that uh, talk about the most critical, uh, the most, uh, the most. Uh, there, there's a, there's levels. There's a moderate threat, a severe threat, and a critical threat. The critical threat was when Doomsday destroyed Metropolis, and then there was the Ultra Woman Centennial Day attack that took place in the pages, I believe, of Superwoman that you mentioned, and then there was a uh, Steelworks Tower uh, destruction uh, that was in PKJ's Philip Kennedy Johnson's Action Comics run. And uh, all of that meant to underscore the fact that Metropolis is regularly under attack. And John Henry Irons' uh, plan here, and this was alluded to in the two in the we had like two backup stories leading into this, but this does a really good way of flushing it out even better. The idea that John John Henry Irons wants to create technology that actually have. So Metropolis as a city can protect itself so that it doesn't actually need heroes. What's interesting here is that Michael Dorn has taken this from an, from an angle. He seems to suggest that at some point, John Henry Irons is going to confront the Superman family and maybe tell them about his plan, which might minimize 
the the need for superheroes because ultimately that's the goal here is to have the the citizens of the world feel safe in a way, in a city that can protect itself so that it can empower the citizenry to protect themselves uh in living in probably some kind of symbiosis with the, with the cities and that's the power of technology and that's what John Henry Irons is is seeking and i find that very very intriguing how that plays into this arch villain stacks you're only as good as the villain so michael dorn this uh, stacks character that's going to be made into a villain an, an unwitting villain one that has a background where he's lost his wife he's maybe bitter and upset but he's not a bad man he's just a grieving man he's hurting but of course you take a grieving man and a hurting man and you and you manipulate them and which is what this uh, Mr. Carey character seems to be doing you, you could probably create a sizable villain so it's really in- intriguing uh, I'm uh, I'm more than prepared to give Michael Dorn a lot of slack here this is sort of a no- while it's an opening issue he's repeating some themes he's had leading up to it but I'm prepared to give this a couple more issues to see where he's going with this there's a lot of talk there's a lot of talk in this issue but i like the plot and i'm really interested in the seeds and the themes that he's introducing so not 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 bad yeah good start uh up next we have adventures of superman written by tom taylor Derek robertson is the penciler for this issue robertson and norm ratman on inks colors by jordy belair letters by wes abbott love the art um Derek robertson the last thing we saw him on was batman fortress Great to see him on this. Um, and basically in the issue, uh, John Kent Superman is flying around the world of the uh, Injustice Superman, sort of doing his own investigating, trying to figure out who can I trust. We saw last issue when he was flying around and he was thinking about how quiet the world was, how there wasn't a lot of disasters or people crying out for help and whatnot. And he came to the realization that it wasn't quiet because Superman had done a good job of um, of making it safe, it was quiet out of fear. Everybody's fearing Superman, fearing his wrath, and so nobody wants to stick their head up. So John is continuing his uh, his investigations, if you will, and trying to figure out how, who to trust, who's on the side of right, and we get some cool interactions between him and uh, and Damian Wayne. Obviously, the the Super Sons reunited different versions of them and it seems like that's what's going to play out um going forward because this damian wayne of the injustice universe is is sort of damaged in a way that the damian wayne of the main universe isn't having lost dick grayson um and and really buying into a lot of what superman does and believes and and you can see why right damian's always been a little bit of a character with more of an edge and this uh, Injustice Superman is a character that has a, an edge as well. So um, it's going to be interesting to see their confrontation and how it's going to play out in the long run. So um, a really, really good issue. Uh, I don't know that it adva- advanced the plot forward very much, um, which, you know, again, we come to sort of expect these types of issues once in a while from uh, from Tom Taylor, where he's going to lean more into the emotion of the character's um, more so than actually moving the plot forward. So a bit of a setup issue in terms of plot, but a, a lot of sort of emotional stakes are brought to the forefront in this issue. So, uh, and then fantastic Derek Robertson art, like I said. Uh, what did you think of it overall, Rock? Uh, what a waste of Derek Robertson's art. What a waste. Uh, I did not like this issue, but then I did. I haven't uh, 
this issue went, uh, the, the entire thing went awry from the beginning when Ultraman was killed. But uh, in fairness, uh, I have to avoid the trap, and I've done this before with Tom Taylor in this series, which I'm very disappointed with. I got to review the story that I'm given, not the story that I wish was being told. <laughs> so, uh, for what it's worth, uh, it's really nice to see uh, Jay Nakamura without his disgusting pink hair. I'll say that. You know, he looks much better as a as a as a black haired man. I mean, just you know, I mean, he looks much better. He's a better looking kid when he's got black hair. I mean, so uh, I I think. Uh, the characterization here, again, Tom Taylor nails the characterization. And if you're fans of adventures, if you're fans of, of the first 18 issues of Adventures of Superman, then you're going to love this series. If you wanted there to be any kind of closure where, Super, where John Kent deals with this trauma, deals with Ultraman, this series isn't it. One of, the, one of my big fears here is this is doing damage to the Injustice universe. If... If the Super Sons, I mean, he's he's telling a Super Sons story. He wants, I mean, I, I guess John Kent is going to be interacting with the Damian Wayne of the Injustice universe. Okay, so we're going to get a de facto Super Sons story. Again, I I mean, boy, we sure shift directions. First it was Ultraman, then I, it was Injustice Superman. Now it's going to be a it's going to be a befriending a a, a, a jaded Damian Wayne in the Injustice universe. I mean, zigzag. Misdirection. What, what's the story he wants to tell here? What's the real point? I'm not. I'm not really sure where this is going. I do know that I'm not interested in it. I, I've I've lost that much because I I don't want. Please, please, I really hope he's got no influence on the Injustice Superman. I mean, for God's sakes, leave the Injustice Superman the asshole that he is. I mean, please. That's the whole attraction of the Injustice Superman. Don't make him a good person. Don't do what you did in Dark Knights of Steel, where you had to make everybody just as good as they are in the mainstream DCU. Don't be afraid to leave Superman a jerk. He's an Injustice Superman. There's a reason why they call it an Injustice Universe, right? Don't don't mess with it too much. Don't 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 make Damian Wayne nice. It's okay. You can leave them a holes. Uh, I mean, that's where the drama is. That's where the story is. That's what fans enjoyed reading. You know, don't don't spit on the woman you took to the dance. I mean, I mean, this is uh, the again, the art's fantastic. But, you know, John Kent interacting with Batman here. I mean, much to do about nothing. I mean, it's just it's, you know, typical misunderstanding. You know, uh, John Kent very clearly. I mean, and I and I have to say this from a storytelling point of view. I mean, you're in, you're in, you're in a universe that is literally a completely different universe. It's an injustice universe. Why would you assume that the analog of of the person that you're sleeping with in your universe is going to be a good person? So he figures John Kent's logic is that well, I'm going to find my boyfriend in this universe and I'll talk with him, and I'm sure he's I'm sure he's just as good as 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 my boyfriend is in 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 the other universe. I mean, was Damian Wayne the same? Why would he assume that? Of course, he goes and meets him and he talks with him and he, maybe he hears his heartbeat. But it's it just, I thought this John Kent was stunningly naive and remains so. But I guess, I guess that's his attraction, I guess. He, you know, he's so innocent. He's so pure. And of course, he's right. He's right. That's what I don't like about it. I, I, where's, I, I want to see more of the jadedness. I want to see more of the darkness. If, if this, if we get to the end of this, and this is all, you know, John Kent is right. 
the Injustice universe is so bad, it's wrong. Oh my God, I wish we had more John Kent's in the universe. Come on. I mean, where's the drama? Where's the fun? Uh, you know, I mean, I get it. John Kent, he, Tom Taylor is going out of his way to show us how perfect John Kent is, how he's not traumatized at all. While, you know, Batman's the asshole here. Damien's the jerk. Uh, of course, the other perfect person in the Injustice universe is naturally his boyfriend, Jay Nakamura, you know, the non-pink haired guy. Of course, the whole thing just seems so forced, so contrived. I'm looking at so much. I want so much more drama here and misdirection this plot is as boring this is going nowhere i'm very very disappointed with this uh although i, I didn't mind seeing harley injustice harley quinn again but frankly i've i, I pulled this is no longer on my pull list either and because i already know this isn't going to end well because Ultraman's dead so that's my rant that's that's too many rants in, the, in one review it's not bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I understand. I understand that it was a complete bait and switch. Um, that doesn't mean that Ultraman can't come back. I mean, we see his body here. He has, you know, something going on. They could bring him back. Uh, like, I, 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 I do agree with you that this is not the story that we were told we were going to get. But I don't think that makes this a bad story. I think it's it's giving John Ken a lot of agency. So I'm a little surprised to hear you're you're not enjoying it because uh, I think there's a lot. Like, I think if you hadn't had if you hadn't been told what the series was and how it's not that, I think you would be enjoying this more. I think you're hung up on the fact that we're not get we're not getting what we were told we were going to get. So there's a bit of that, uh, yes. Anyway, let's move on. Shazam number two, written by Mark Wade. Art is by Dan Mora. Colors by Alejandro Sanchez. Uh, Troy Petrie on letters. Um, we saw at the end of last issue. Uh, Shazam sort of lose it. Captain Marvel sort of lose it and yell at some of the people that he had just rescued. And this issue starts off with the rest of the Shazam family, even though they don't have powers, calling them out for that. So uh, what would you think of this? Uh, I've been enjoying this. Mark Mark Wade, Dan Mora. I mean, Dan Mora's art is just fantastic. Uh, even all the variant covers here, although, you know, once again, all these variant covers uh, – suffer from the criticism that none of them have anything to do with the actual content of the comic book, which is an ongoing criticism. Although one is, is arguably that at least they're fun and they're goofy. And uh, a, a quick shout out, by the way, I'm actually collecting all the flash movie covers as well. I foolishly gambled on getting all the black Adam movie covers and that worked out so well. So I think I'm a jinx for the flash movie, but foolishly I'm getting all the flash movie cover variants uh because you know i'm a hypocrite i bitch about covers and then i go out and buy them in any event um last issue ended with shazam acting very much out of character uh, because uh, it appears that the the various uh, gods that make up the the powers of shazam uh you know being solomon and zeus and uh Atlas and etc uh, etc et uh, they are apparently uh, they're disappointed with how Billy's using his powers and and what's been hinted at and what we've been able to infer in, in the first issue is that uh, they seem to be disappointed in Billy and they're they're sort of controlling Billy and last issue ended with Billy sort of or rather Shazam losing it and yelling at a reporter and being very much out of character and being a real a-hole and it was live on TV and and this issue opens with all his all his uh his orphan brothers and sisters you know calling him out and you're saying what the hell was that about and he's saying that you know he he can't he doesn't know what it is and he's afraid to become Shazam and 
as as this this story progresses, I mean, there's a the first issue had I mean di- a dinosaur showed up. Shazam helped helped a dinosaur, and and in this issue, a dinosaur shows up at his doorstep. There's a lot of zaniness. This is a lot of fun. This is Mark Wade just having fun. You know what's great about this in a, in a it it feels like it's written like this. This is almost written for a 15 year old, and yet it's. Somehow Mark Wade makes it possible for adults to have fun reading a story that feels like it's being written for uh, a younger teenager. And yet it feels like it's a lot of fun to read as an adult. And that's something that not everyone can pull off because some some comic books feel like they're being written for children. And it's, it, and they, they, they feel I almost feel insulted that I'm reading it because it, it shouldn't be. It, you know, it, it feels it doesn't feel that that it's something that can entertain me as an adult. This is different. It's got a this is uh, beautifully drawn. I I love the art here, and I and I love the Dan Moore does an amazing job. Just when I got to kiss my daughter goodnight. Good night. Love you. Uh, and Psycho Pirate shows up, and it's actually I think it's it's a very convenient villain to show up that Shazam has to stop. Uh, Psycho Pirate, of all things, it wants to steal the Mona Lisa. And Psycho Pirate, of course, manipulates emotions. And ultimately, there's a confrontation between Shazam and Psycho Pirate. Billy reluctantly turns into Shazam uh, because he has no choice uh, because he has to stop Psycho Pirate. And there's some really great action sequences, particularly with uh, Shazam. You know, uh, stopping uh, stopping a train is just really epic in like Superman like fashion. Some really great action sequences, beautifully drawn, and ultimately Shazam loses it in in stopping uh, Roger Hayden, who is Psycho Pirate, and he realizes that uh, Psycho Pirate doesn't have his mask. So it, once again, it was Shazam was not his emotions were not being manipulated by Psycho Pirate. He he lost he lost it emotionally because once again some something's playing havoc with Shazam's powers or Shazam's state of mind and not even the wisdom of Solomon can help Billy figure out what the heck is going on and of course it's 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 strongly hinted that the reason why the wisdom of Solomon isn't helping helping Billy solve the mystery as to what his problem is, is that Solomon himself is probably one of the ones who is angry or upset with Billy along with the other, uh, his, his other patron gods that give him his power. And uh, it ends with the tease of Mary Marvel going into night terrors, which is coming up in the, during the summer months. And with uh, Freddie, young Freddie, who is the only one, he, he, you know, he, he wants to get some powers too, because Mary Marvel got, Amazon, Amazon powers, uh, Amazon goddesses gave Mary Marvel her own unique power set. And Freddie wants, would like his own unique power set too. And uh, he wants to also help Billy. And unfortunately, he's discovered by one of the gods, uh, patron gods of, uh, of Shazam. And, uh, uh, where's the wizard? I don't know where the wizard is. Uh, I don't know where the wizard is in all of this, but, uh, that will be revealed, I'm sure. But in the meantime, I enjoyed this. I had a lot of fun with this. What about you, Jace? Well, didn't we see the wizard last in the pages of the Wonder Woman book? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah well, we saw him there. But how, how does he end up here? Or does he end up here? I don't know. Yeah, it turned evil due to Lazarus Rain. So, yeah, I really love the backup with Billy uh, or, or uh, Freddie, rather, because he, here's the thing about Freddie. Like, more than any, any of the other kids that have the Shazam abilities – 
I think it means the most to him because he says it himself. He's like, the other kids can, you know, run and play football and ride a skateboard. They can do all that stuff when they're not in the Shazam persona. Freddie has issues, you know, he has physical um, disabilities that don't allow him to be just a regular kid. So I think it, in a way it means more to him um, than, than anyone else. So the Dan Moore art is fantastic. Uh, yes, I would, I would say this is, I won't go, I won't say it's continuity light because there is continuity here. Um, but Mark Wade, he's such a fantastic writer. Uh, he, he's telling a story in such a way that it doesn't contradict anything else. And you don't necessarily need to be reading anything else. You can read this and it, it stands on its own. Uh, so he's doing a fantastic job in that way. And whether or not it might tie in later on, um, you know, we'll see. Cassine Psycho Pirate, again, last time we saw him was in the pages of Batman, uh, Detective Comics, actually. Um, and yeah, I think he's he's an underutilized character and uh, made complete sense when he showed up here. Like, oh, he's manipulating Billy's emotions. And then you find out that's not the case. Uh, and it's another little curveball. But again, much like um, World's Finest, I don't expect this mystery to be dragged out by Mark Wade. He's a better writer than that. He's not going to rely on some, you know, false intrigue or mystery. He's, it's going to take as long as it takes for us to find out what exactly is going on, who the true villain is. I, I sort of expect to, to find it um, next issue. And I talked to Mark Wade at uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix uh, comic convention this last weekend. Um, and he mentioned how much fun he's having writing both this and, uh, and world's finest. So, when a writer's having that much fun, it comes through in the story, and that's definitely what we're yeah, seeing here. It does. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Poison Ivy, issue 13, written by G. Willow Wilson. Marcio Takara does the art on pages 1 and then 20 through 22. Gim Marsh uh, does 2 through 4. Kelly Jones on 5 through 11. A.L. Kaplan, 12 through 19. Prianto, Arif Prianto, Jose Villarubia, A.L. Kaplan, and then Hassan Atzman Elhau handle, uh, or sorry, Prianto, Villaruba, and Kaplan handle the colors, and then ha- uh, Hassan Atzman Elhau on letters. So I enjoyed seeing Guillaume Marsh's art more than anyone else. I, I kind of wish he was doing the whole thing. I love his Poison Ivy, especially the way he draws her hair. Kelly Jones' art felt very nostalgic for me. You know, I, I was reading Batman when Kelly Jones was the regular artist on that, so... So it's fine. As far as the story itself, I'm starting to lose a little bit of interest in Poison Ivy. This felt like a down issue um, to me. It felt like it's starting to lean into some of the more kind of tropey things that Poison Ivy did in the past. She's teaming up with Killer Croc. She's going to take out a high rise that's being built in Gotham City. Um, So again, that's it's leaning into the whole eco terrorism thing. It's just it's not that interesting to me. Um, and I feel like with what G. Willow Wilson has built previously, it, she's been a more interesting character than that. Um, and that's, it feels like a little bit of a step backwards, but um, not giving up on it yet. I, I do still continue to like the tone, the voice that uh, Wilson gives to, to Pamela Isley. I think she understands who she is as a character very, very well. Um, and, you know, it's a play sort of devil's advocate, take the other side of what I was just saying. It's like, well, where else can you go with her being back in Gotham? And a lot of people have been waiting for her to get back together with Ivy. Um, so hopefully this is sort of a temporary thing. And there's hints of that, that she may be taking uh, Ivy out of Gotham city, but still keeping her close, keeping her somewhere where we, she can explore the relationship with Ivy, but it's, she's not in Gotham city, which seems to engender 
<laughs> telling stories of her as one of Batman's gallery of villains, so to speak. So um, we'll have to wait and see how it, it plays out. But but man, I'm looking at the Guillaume Marsh pages right now and just thinking, God, I wish wish he was a regular penciler on this book. Love his art. So uh, anyway, what were your thoughts? Yeah, well, first first a shout out to Guillaume Marsh. I I've got his two volume art set there's these two uh i got a the soft car cover and a hard cover of his uh, volumes one and two of his art fantastic i i love guillaume mars he's one of my favorite cover artists and uh i particularly love when he does a cover that isn't a ratio variant because i can't get his ratio variants because it's too bloody expensive but man does he draw sexy women and he definitely knows how to draw a sexy poison ivy here um uh now i am i'm a little bit like some people, I'm surprised that this series is as popular as it is. At the same time, it is popular, and I think that part of the reason why if it's popularity, and, and this is just a theory, I could be wrong, is that I, I, I think that there's just there's some stability and normality in Poison Ivy here. And because of the promise which has been kept – namely bringing Harley and Ivy together, that's always been in the background. Plus, there's always been sexual tension in every issue, whether Poison Ivy, if Poison Ivy isn't sleeping with Harley, she's sleeping with somebody else. And there's even hints at orgies and sexuality and perfume and the mist and the, I mean, it's, it's, it, it seems to have this psychosexual element, but it's grounded in character and grounded in the love that poi that ivy has for harley and she finds her way back home to gotham here what i find so funny here is i can't think of two people more completely screwed up psychologically that's not true i probably can but let's face it harley and ivy are pretty screwed up and to put them together and to expect that this is going to be a functioning relationship is kind of laughable and yet here we are and the disappointment of this is the story uh, that J. Willow Wilson is – the stories that she tells, I would – it would seem to me that this, the story to be told is how on earth do these two stay together and I want to see them – I want to see the dysfunction. I want to see the serious dysfunction, not, not, not played like a joke like it is in a Harley comic book. This is a Poison Ivy book. Tell me a serious story about a dysfunctional relationship between Harley and Ivy, something that they have to overcome so they earn their relationship. I mean, let's face it. What, what does what uh, J. Willow Wilson do when, she, when, when Ivy and Harley get together? They get along fine. They love each other. They get along. They, nothing. There's no dysfunction at all. They get along absolutely fine. Ah, they both kill. They, they kill people. It's not a big deal. Ivy kills people. It's a little psychotic. It's not a big deal. Uh, they get together. They have sex. They, this, this, this issue opens up. They're sleeping beside each other. Oh, hunky dunky. Everything's fine. Come on. I mean, there's more drama in when Bruce Wayne sleeps with a, with, with, with a woman. I mean, there's, there's got to be more drama here in, in the relationship between Poison Ivy and Harley and this devoid here. Instead, we get we get a story where Poison Ivy's getting up and she's gonna she she goes out and she wants to have a house in the swamp because Batman doesn't want her in Gotham so she wants to get a house out in the swamp or outside on the outskirts of Gotham but that's where Killer Croc is and Killer Croc moved out to the swamp because so, there's a there's a building uh, uh, being built a tower being built above where he would like to live in the sewage under the ground and so he makes a deal with Poison Ivy to go take out this high tower. I, I mean, I get it. It's it's a story, but 
of all the stories that could be told here, I, I would rather, I can't believe we're, we're missing out on a story between, uh, between Ivy and Harley. And uh, again, I just, I, I'm, I'm continuously surprised and wrong on, on, on my instincts on this comic. It continues to sell well. People seem to really love this, uh, but I just find it directionless and kind of, it's getting boring. I agree with you. This is really getting boring. And I just, I can't believe of the missed opportunity that, I mean, have some fun exploring the complete nonsensical dysfunctional nature of the Ivy Harley relationship. I mean, you should be having a blast with that uh, and, and pushing some boundaries there. But instead we we're getting some fairly, I think, derivative, predictable storytelling. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go so far as to say it's derivative and predictable yet, but it seems to be heading in that direction. That's what I'm. That's what I'm worried about. Harley as, or uh, rather, Poison Ivy as this eco terrorist taking down, you know, uh, high rise condos that are for the super rich in Gotham. It's been there, done that. You know, like um, thought we were doing something different with the series. So we'll we'll wait and see. Joel Wilson is a very talented creator. So uh, all right, up next we have Flash 800. Bitter sweet is the best way to describe this friend of the show. Somebody Rocky and I both know personally, Jeremy Adams. This is his last issue on flash. Um, it's, it's bittersweet because the issue's so amazing. This may be one of my favorite Jeremy Adams, Wally West flash stories he's ever done. So it's one of uh, five stories that are in here. Don't come to central city for story written by Jeremy Adams, pencils, amazing pencils. By Fernando Passerin, inks by Eau Claire Albert, colors by Matt Herms, letters by Rob Lee. Then we have The Max in the Mirror, written by Mark Wade. Pencils and inks by Todd Knott, colors by Matt Herms, letter by Rob Lee. Love that that fits into past continuity. A Flash Family Story, written by Joshua Williamson. Great pencils and inks by Carmen A. Dijon Domenico. I almost didn't recognize it as his style. The art is so clean, which is not what I'm used to him uh, from him. Um, but he was a longtime uh Penciler on Joshua Williamson's run. Colors on that one are by Yvonne Placencia. Letters by Rob Lee. And then there's a story by Jeff Johns, Blitz Back, uh, starring Hunter Zolomon, uh, Zoom. Uh, Pencils and Inks in that one by Scott Collins. Colors by Luis Guerrero. Letters by Rob Lee. And then finally, uh, Between Love and You, which is a Dawn of DC prelude, written by Cy Spurrier. Pencils and Inks by Mike Diodato Jr. Colors by Trish Mulvihill. Letters by Hassan Osman Elhow. It's sort of a preview of what to expect from the cosmic horror, right? That's what we were told. That was the uh, description of what Cy Spurrier Flash Run is going to be, cosmic horror. So if you're curious about what that'll be, trying to decide if you're going to put it on your pull list, um, yeah, you can check that story out and it'll give you a, a good idea. Tons of covers too. We have cover main cover by Torin Clark, then variants by Michael Cho, Jeff DeCall, uh, Simone DeMeo, David Nakayama, Otto Schmidt, Francis Manipal, Javier Rodriguez, Matt Taylor, and a Flash movie variant cover by John uh, John Boy Myers. So, um, yeah, give us your thoughts, Rocky. I guess we'll go story by story. Uh, what do you think of the, the first one, Don't Come to Central City? Uh, well, uh, Don't Come to Central City, it's written by Jeremy Adams. And uh, Jeremy, my friend, you made me laugh. This, this was probably... Uh, we've been entertained with some pretty entertaining laugh out loud flash comics by uh, Jeremy Adams. This one, this one, I think I, I, I had a hearty laugh. This one I thoroughly enjoyed. This is a, this is 
it, we start off, we're introduced to, it looks like a bunch of supervillains that I don't recognize, or maybe there's Golden Glider, I think, or I don't know. It, it's really unimportant, but they're talking about what cities, I mean, it's actually hilarious because it's a conversation that, that a lot of comic collectors that we, you could imagine we could have this, I could have this conversation in a comic shop on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And that is, if I lived in the DC universe and was a supervillain, what was the, be- what would be the, the worst city to be a supervillain in and what would be the best city? And that's the conversation that these supervillains are having. And they're basically talking about the Flash. And there's, ba- they basically say that, you know, they, they, they would never ever want to practice crime. In Central City, because it's the worst place, because Wally West, or pardon me, they know, obviously, The Flash, The Flash is just, you know, you, you can't beat The Flash. And what I, and it's, it's really a love letter to just how spectacular The Flash is. And it, it's just really funny stories about one time the Joker tried to try to his shenanigans in Central City and a, you know, literally in seconds, the threat of the Joker was gone because, you know, the Flash, you know, basically tornado Joker and his Joker gas away, away from Central City. And then uh, and then Condiment King tried to rob a bank and then ended up within a few seconds. He, he found himself not in the bank, but in the, the desert thousands of miles away. <laughs> and then and then uh, all, all these other villains that, that they they try to they try to take on the Flash and they find themselves uh, easily handily defeated and. And my favorite story, of course, the highlight of the issue is they're telling the story of Mordru, this powerful sorcerer. Uh, Mordru, you know, shows up in the city and basically steals, essentially takes a sucker away from a, a, a young girl on the street. And the Flash literally chases Mordru through time, through different dimensions to get the young girl, her sucker back. <laughs> and uh, just, you know, I mean, and it's... For those of us who have been, I mean, all of us have been, I mean, is there anybody who's been reading Flash that hasn't been at least liking it? A good many of us, like you and I, have been loving it. And, uh, you know, the Flash has been such, it's a story that's Wally West, it's about family, it's about love, it's about compassion, it's about fun. And it's and the embodiment of the flat Wally West is about his his kids and his love for his children. And they, of course, he's got a young, they got a young uh, a new son named Wade now. So now there's three children. And, and, and the whole idea that, that Wally, Wally, Wally West is a terrific dad. And of course, a father is going to travel through time and space to get a, to rescue a sucker from a supervillain to give it back to a young girl on a street, city street. And this is such a Wally West thing to do. And what a way, what a, what a perfect way Ironically, for Wally, for for Jerry Adams to sort of say, well, you know, basically saying, hopefully, a temporary goodbye to Wally West <laughs> by ending on that note. That here's this super speedster, the fastest man alive. You want to know who he is? This is a guy that'll go through time and space to rescue a sucker that's uh, from a supervillain uh, to give it back to a young girl, and it's just a lot of fun. And of course, uh, it, it ends, of course, with Flash. Uh, catching the bad guys, uh, interrupting their card game. But uh, I, I really love this uh, this opening issue. What about yourself? Yeah, it's just a lot of fun. You know, it shows the power of the Flash, shows the how, just how fast Wally West can be. Um, the art is fantastic. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing to dislike here. It has the humor 
and the happiness and the feel um, that, you know, I sort of expect from a Jeremy Adams flash story. So, you know, absolutely amazing. Just love it. Um, yeah. Very sad to see him go. Um, that he's not going to be on the, he's not going to be on the title anymore. So yeah. Um, it's just so much, it's just so much fun. Um, yeah. Just something that you, like you said, you don't necessarily think about, but something that, uh, again, you know, comic book fodder, comic book store fodder, where you, you talk about, Hey, if you're a super villain, where's the worst, you know, which is the city you'd like to be in the least. And everything that Jeremy play has play out here makes total sense. It's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the second story, the Max in the Mirror, again, it takes place during Impulse six and seven, which, I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Mark Wade wrote those issues, so it makes sense to have him here writing this uh, story that takes place between issues six and seven of Impulse. Um, Todd Knock, gorgeous art, really suits the the tone of the story that Mark Wade is telling, uh, and it's basically telling the story of Max Mercury and Flat and Wally West Flash being stuck in a mirror. Um, the, where the mirror master imprisoned them and he, they only have a limited time to be freed before they're going to sort of dissipate. And they talk to uh, Bart Allen. He talked to impulse through the mirror of his bathroom and tell him, Hey, you need, we need you to go find the mirror master. Cause we're trapped here. But again, uh, the patience that Bart Allen doesn't have, they don't listen to the second half of the sentence, which is, yeah, you know, we need help. Um, we need you to get him to release us. Well, he's knocked out cold. Uh, so they're like, well, maybe you could pick up his gun and really, you know, the mirror gun and release us. Um, and that's not possible either because Bart has destroyed it in <laughs> taking out uh, mirror master. So again, it's just it sort of, if it has anything in, in, uh, in common with the first story, it's just how much fun it is. Uh, and it really does showcase how Bart Allen can kind of sort of act before he thinks but that he's not a, 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 that doesn't mean he's dumb, right? Like that was one of the sort of the themes in the recent Young Justice series is people kind of take him as, um, because he's so impulsive again, I mean, his name is impulse. Um, and sometimes he can act without thinking, but that doesn't mean he doesn't have the capability to think and figure things out, which he does in this story. So uh, for anybody who's not familiar with impulse, this is actually a really, really good story in terms of kind of, boiling the character down to his essence in uh, in just a short short few pages here. So, uh, again, kudos to Mark Wade. Uh, he's such a fantastic writer. Uh, so I, I enjoyed this. And the Todd Knock art, again, tone perfect for the story. Um, just just great. Just beautiful. Yeah. So, I, what, I, 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 I echo your sentiment. And uh, it's funny. I, I couldn't help but think of that Young Justice series, just how – I mean, that, that Young Justice series, which was, of course, completely different, written by Megan Fitzmartin then. But this is this is the impulse that we know and love. This is what I was hoping. I was hoping it was going to capture the essence of it. And kudos to Mark Wade here, just being very blunt, dispensing with all uh, pretense and saying, you know, enough. Uh, I love continuity. Uh, rather than try to shoehorn this into the present continuity of this story, I'm just going to say it took place between this and this and this issue of my run way back in the day, which is back in the 90s sometime between issues six and seven. And it fits. It's great. It's impulse the way that we love. It just goes to show that the, the, the classic iteration of these characters hasn't 
we haven't lost it. And this is a message. And I don't want to pick on Fitzmartin, but the message of that Young Justice series was, you know, we've moved on. We're past this. And, you know, shame on you for liking the 90s and, and who these characters were. Well, you know, Mark Wadeser seems to still like how Impulse was back then. And he's written a story and it's fantastic. It's entertaining. It's funny. And this is the, this is the iteration of these characters that uh, we, we, we know and love. And the reaction between Max Mercury and Wally West to the Impulse, especially when they thought they were going to die at Impulse, somehow he's actually pretty damn smart. He figures out the miles per second. He powers up the gut. He puts it together. I mean, he might be impulsive, hence the name. But damn if he doesn't know how to win the day. And uh, it's just it's, it's another reason why we love the character. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Uh, all right. The, well, the next to last story, Flash Family by Joshua Williamson and Carmen A.D. John Domenico. Um, yeah. What, what were your thoughts on this one? Uh, this one was uh... – I don't know. I didn't really. Uh, I, I guess it was okay. It was a feel good story. I I didn't. I thought this was this was my least favorite, but it was. Uh, it was. It was just. I thought it was a little bit boring, to be honest with you. It was just uh, Barry and Iris, and uh, they were going on a date, and he takes them on a takes Barry takes Iris on a cosmic treadmill, and they go and they meet. They meet their future children, and uh, they're. I guess. The Tornado Twins from the future, I think. Is that who they are? Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I think that's who they are. Um, doesn't really uh, identify, say who they are, although longtime Flash readers, well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's who they are. But uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not, I, I like the fact that uh, Wally and, and, and Linda are in it. And I'm not sure. Um, yeah, Barry and Barry and Al, Barry and uh, Iris show up, and they take. I guess they're all gonna go out. The, the, I guess they're all gonna. They, they all go out together at, at the end. So I, I guess it, it, it's nice. I just thought it was, uh, you know, I guess it was a feel good story, and it was Joshua Williamson actually, you know, you know, actually. Well, I, I just thought it was meh. I just thought it was meh. It was. Uh, it. It was the least. I can't say anything bad about it. It was just, it was just really boring, but uh, I don't know. what do you think of it? Yeah. Unfortunately, I kind of feel, feel the same way. Like um, I get what Williamson was trying to do. You know, he's trying to, to sort of capture that family feel that Jeremy Adams has been able to capture so well and remind us how much these people care about each other. And it's meant to be an emotional story, but it didn't add anything new. You know, it didn't, it, it there was no dynamic moment. There was no yeah. real emotional hook. Uh, it just sort of told us what long term Flash fans already know. Like these yeah. these the Flash family is a close knit family. It's something that works as a family. It doesn't feel forced like the Green Arrow family has sort of felt in the first couple issues of that, um, or or even to some extent the Superman family, um, and and you know Batman family has grown so big. It's God, don't even get me started there. But, but yeah, this one, it didn't, there didn't feel like anything special, you know, like if you're writing a story for flash 800, a milestone issue, I just kind of expect a little more from, from Williamson. It's not a bad story by any means. And it's great to see so many characters of flash family and, and where it shines is the interaction um, between Wally and, and Linda uh, when Wally calls her Barry a nerd and she smacks him like that. That's, that's all fun. Um, and it's where the story's at its best, but the rest of the time, it's just, 
sort of, like you said, meh. It didn't, it didn't land for me. So, uh, but the Carmen Dijon Domenico art, like I said, it's, it's sort of cleaner lines than I'm used to seeing from him. Um, but really fantastic, especially the collage where Wally and Linda are holding little baby Wade. And uh, there's a bunch of flash characters in the back from, um, from the Barry Allen version of flash, Wally West, Jay Garrick impulses there. Um, what's the, uh, Godspeed is there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, up next, the, the Hunter Zolomon blitz back from Jeff Johns, Scott Collins, uh, sort of similar to the, the story we just talked about and that there doesn't seem to be a lot of anything new here, except for a hint we get at the very end of the story, we get the picture of the desk of Detective Ashley Zolomon, which, if I'm not mistaken, that's isn't that Hunter Zolomon's wife, Ashley, or is it his sister? Either way, it's somebody that I wasn't aware was a member of the police force. That might be a hint of something new that's coming. Um, but Zolomon hasn't been around for a long time. Zoom hasn't been around for a long time. And I know a lot of people, they get Zoom and Reverse Flash mixed up. They are different characters. Um, but but it, yeah, I under, completely understand why it's hard to keep them straight. Zoom got introduced after uh, Reverse Flash was supposedly dead. But then there's some similarities, especially in the way they look. So I can 100% understand why people would think they're the same uh, character. But um Anyway, I, I just thought it was okay. The main thing I was left with was, as I said, that picture uh, that says – or the panel that says Detective Ashley Zolomon. Don't know what that's about. And and why is this there? Does this mean we're going to get some Zoom again soon? I, I don't know. Like if you tell Jeff Johns, hey, we want you to write a story for uh, Flash 800, you can understand why, right? He had a very long run on the Flash and it's beloved. Why would he choose to write about Zoom of all characters? So – yeah, not not sure. Curious. What do you think? I've uh, I've never been a fan of this Hunter character, Hunter Zoom. I think it's a stupid character. I think it's one of Jeff Johns' worst characters ever. Uh, the motivation is absurd. He wants to make Wally West the perfect Flash. Why? I think Jeff Johns thinks he explained it here. It's an absurd explanation. There's an, it's a non-explanation. I, I don't know why he wants to make Wally West the perfect Flash. It makes no sense. I realize he's insane. He's a bad guy. So I guess it doesn't need to make sense. Well, it doesn't. Uh, I have no interest in seeing this character. Unfortunately, we probably are going to see this character again. I'm in the extreme minority because I know that Jeff Johns, I wasn't a big fl- fan of his Flash run. I think he over... Jeff Johns is obsessed with... Zoom and Eben Thon and I mean, just, uh, and un- unfortunately, I don't think it's been long enough. I like that we haven't seen reverse flash or Zoom. To me, it's the same shit, different pile. Uh, it's a, it's a, if it's, if it's a flash with the yellow costume, I'm not interested in the villain. I'm just, I don't care. They're, they're, they're one hit wonders. They're, they're all the, they're the same variation on the same nonsense. And I got no interest in Hunter Zolomon. Uh, this explanation, I, I, for fans who want to know, who Hunter Solomon is, well, this explains it all. And I, I guess he has got a sister, I guess. Is Jeff Johns going to be writing a, a, this character in the future, I guess? Uh, uh, well, right, like, we know that the upcoming Flash series is a Barry Allen series. Where's okay. Wally West? Zoom well, we, is a West character. Uh, fair enough. West, 
villain, you know, not not really a Barry Allen villain. Yeah, is it? Well, what's interesting is that Jeff Johns is already behind. I mean, uh, we he's already ridiculously behind in Justice Justice Society. The next issue of Justice Society has been delayed again by another, I think, three weeks. Uh, he's he's already behind on all his projects. And uh, Doom, I mean, we, I don't know if uh, if I, maybe Jeff Johns is just doing this for this issue. But if, if there is going to be future Hunter Solomon stories, which might be excellent, by the way, I'm just forget me being a negative Nelly. I'm just not a fan of the of the character. I'm not saying the story can't be great, but I'm I'm really hoping that I mean, I hate to say this, but. Is if Jeff Johns has so much on his plate, I don't think the guy can can put more. The more comic books you put on Jeff Johns' plate, I mean, the more delays we seem to be getting. Uh, as much as I love the guy's uh, comic book stories, but in any event, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I I'm not a fan of this of Hunter Solomon, but I'm I know that I'm in the minority. A lot of F- uh, Flash fans love the character, and this is. I'm sure most people will love the fact that this has been teased and that Jeff Johns is writing it. And uh, even though it seems to be derivative and the same stuff we've gotten before, but like you said, so his sister's detective Ashley Solomon now, Solomon now. Um, Okay. I mean, that's, that's interesting. I guess we'll see where that takes us, but, uh, but I'm, I'm more interested in your thoughts on the, the final story of this issue 800. Yeah. Multo Benny's, um, with, uh, again, we know that the story that's going to be told by Cy Spurrier is a Barry Allen story, but and this is a preview to it, but it's Wally West and Linda. And it's, it's in, the, the villain is apparently Mirror Master, but what we find out after Wally defeats him, he's, <coughs> he thinks maybe he has a new power um, because it, it gets really out there and esoteric, which you sort of expect from Cy Spurrier, right? Um, and the art is kind of out there too with tentacles and eyeballs and I don't know, interdimensional insect looking things and zombies and fungi. And yeah, I, I, I didn't really care for that aspect of the story, but then at the end when Wally realizes that everything didn't get wrapped up in this nice, neat little bow, even though he managed to capture Mirror Master and, and trap him or put him in uh, Black uh, Iron Heights Penitentiary, I almost say Blackgate, but that's Gotham City. Yeah, Iron Heights. There's somebody that's talking to Mirror Master saying, you need to become the criminal uh, or you need to do more, right? Um, before the criminal Wally West returns to torment you further, there's still, there's still much to do. And again, we see his limbs being wrapped up in these tentacles with eyeballs, which... God, even that feels tropey, right? It feels very much like a size spurrier thing, like body horror, or whatever. I'm sort of over it, um, body horror and that sort of thing. I feel like we've gotten so much of it over the last three or four years, especially when you add in the idea of fungi, right? Like we saw in pages of Poison Ivy recently, and and other we've seen in other independent stuff. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what to think. Um, I'm trying to hold out you know, reserve judgment. It, this might be really interesting, but I, I have a feeling, unfortunately, it's, it's sort of going to be exactly what I expect, which is something that just feels so incongruous, right? Mixing Wally, especially coming out of the Jeremy Adams run that leaned into the kind of traditional superheroic feel and family feel of Flash to take it in this direction where it just doesn't feel, whether it's Barry Allen or Wally West, like fighting against some 
body horror type cosmic villain um, and talking about, you know, multi dimensions and, you know, glitching frequencies and what have you. It just, it just doesn't feel like flash to me. And maybe that's what they want. Maybe that's what they want. But my worry is that a lot of flash fans, a lot of people who've enjoyed what's been going on, aren't going to really want to hear about, atomic mirrors and quantum barriers and you're sort of losing the forest for the trees. If you know what I mean, you get so into these crazy, amazing ideas that you forget to tell a good story with all the other sort of unnecessary, I don't know, paraphernalia of using cool. I'm going to use cool terms. I'm going to use this cool idea of an atomic mirror or a quantum barrier or whatever. Like these aren't real things, you know? And so where's the context where, where, where are flash fans going to relate? So I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm worried. Uh, that's probably the best way to like, how do I feel about, how did I feel? How do I feel after reading the story? I'm worried about what's to come on us, yeah. to be honest. So I guess in that way, it's sort of met expectations. Uh, Cause it just doesn't, I mean, cosmic horror and the flash just, it doesn't feel like a, a winning formula to me, but what the hell do I know? Yeah. I'm just a fan. I, um, well, uh, I find it interesting because, you know, Cy Spurrier is the writer and yet in, in some of the, the lettering or some of the, the word balloons, the lettering reminds me of some of the lettering that was in his backup on Detective Comics, which was probably some of the worst backups I've ever read uh, in comics in, in, in recent memory, uh, which I really hope The Flash would not have any semblance of that, quite frankly, but... Uh, here, at least the story is a little bit better. I can understand what's going on, but it just feels so esoteric. And, and that's fine. It is, it is horror-based, and it, is, it, it, is, we, it would be unfair if we, judge, if we use a Jeremy Adams metric, which was all family-based on this. This is a decidedly different take. This was an editor who decided that, you know, let's, put, uh, let's have a horror vibe on Flash. An editor, whether it's an editor or a group editor that made this decision, whoever they are, fire them. Uh, but that's another ta- topic. But uh, this this story, here's what frustrates me about these types of flash stories. It's sort of like every time it's like it's like reading a bunch of Joshua Williamson flash stories where the rules of the speed force change all the time. You know, it's OK if it's a terrible story, just change the rules of the speed force here. Once again, he, you know, uh, I hate to say this, but Mike Diodato uh, is while he's one of my favorite artists. There are limitations in terms of what an artist can do to draw what what Sisperior wants them to draw here because everything here is just literally we're, – we're to- we have to be told what's happening because the art doesn't help us. Good God. I mean it, it, the art's fantastic by the way. The art's fantastic. I love Mike Theodatis' art. He's got this uh, – uh, uh, he's got this style that I've always loved and it he – does a really good job of conveying the tone and the mood and the, the darkness and, and even the romantic setting of the restaurant where Wally's in. And, you know, this, this is a story that takes place literally in a probably four or five seconds. And Linda just happens to see a little bit of a lightning shift. So she knows that while Wally West is at, in the restaurant with her, he's also somewhere else. And true to form, Sisperia, uh, at least cr- characterizes Linda right that Linda is not angry she's not even disappointed she's just unsurprised so he at least has Linda in character because she knows her husband Wally would would you know he's he can't stop being a superhero just because they're going out on a date and um but 
it this does feel uh, I didn't really understand, you know, stepping sideways through the overlapping layers of existence. But all I can think is not now, not now, not now. And the realms of fungal geometry that angles can't that I can't describe where impossible things lurk between frozen moments. Okay, but already I can tell we're 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 going to be off in everything's going to have to be described. It's going to be like a Ram V type. It's going to be like you know, Cy Spurrier trying to imitate Ram V. Unsurprisingly, he just comes off Detective and trying to put Flash through through that. You know, be like you know, there's a there's a time and place for that, and, and maybe Cy Spurrier will su- surprise us. Uh, but I, like I said, so far I'm I'm with you on this. I'm not looking forward to this new direction of Wally West, The Flash. But, hey, you know, we've been surprised before. And I'll, I'll happily bitch slap my past self uh, moving forward. If I, I'm going to give Cy Sparrier plenty of rope here. I just don't want him to hang himself. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's just a bunch of nonsense words, right? Like, like, like you mentioned. You know, when you talk about stepping sideways through reality, whatever, what is that? I mean, what the hell does that mean? You know, like it's just, you know, it goes to the the quantum barrier, atomic mirror, whatever. It's just, it's, I get like, maybe some people like the way that he writes, but to me, glitching, glitching through layers of light, like sinking through sediment, there's no value to that. There's no, there's no storytelling. I guess it's setting a mood, but it's not really a mood that suits the flash. So again, I'm just like I said, I'm just worried. I'm just worried, uh, and I hope Flash doesn't become unreadable because you're right. Like that, that even though I, I understood, that oftentimes I was explaining to you what was going on in the backup for Detective Comics. It was in a lot of ways incomprehensible, you know. And obviously, we don't want Flash to to get like man. It, it's been a long time since I haven't looked forward to reading the Flash every month. I hate to think we're getting back to that, uh, but. I, hey, now I look forward to reading Green Lantern every month. It's <laughs> That's right. So there you go. Uh, all right. So in addition to these uh, individual issues, uh, we also have Scooby-Doo, Where Are You, number 122. And then for collections this week, Nightwing, volume one, Leaping Into the Light, trade paperback. That's the Tom Taylor series. Uh, this first volume here collects 78 through 83, which is probably the height of that series so far. It has sort of slowed down and in terms of its dynamic feel, uh, I'll say. Hoping it gets back to that. We also have Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazon's hardcover, collects the first three issues. Oh, my God, I cannot recommend this highly enough. Phil Jimenez, well-deserved win uh, of an Eisner for Best Artist for Volume 1. Gene Ha did the art on the second. Nicholas Scott did the art on the third, all written by Kelly Sudokonik. It's a reimagining, it's a retelling of the Amazons and... uh, and Wonder Woman, and you know Kelly Sue has plans for nine chapters. I hope we get all nine. This collects the first three. Absolutely amazing. Can't recommend it highly enough. There's a, a hard cover and a soft cover that come out this week. So um, whatever your preference there. Uh, and then History of the DC Universe. This was another absolutely fantastic book. Um, it's Marv Wolfman and George Perez. This came out right after. Uh, crisis on infinite earths and it's a it's kind of a different look a lot of the stuff that's in here may not necessarily be uh in in continuity or 100 accurate now but again two creators at the height of their powers uh wolfman perez so and it's got a cool this version has a cool new alex ross 
cover. So uh, if you're curious, check that out. Batman Fortress, we just mentioned it. Derek Robertson's last project at DC Comics. Gary Witta, the screenwriter, is the writer. It was a heck of a lot of fun. Issues one through eight uh, of that series are all collected. And then there's also a fan club Batman Squad graphic novel, which is in um, the YA line of, uh, of DC, is also hitting hitting comic shops this week. So, uh, all right, Rocky, putting you on the spot here. What was your book of the week? Uh, well, you're not really putting me on the spot. Uh, it was uh, fairly easy for me, and uh, and that is the Flash. It was uh, it was. Flash 800. It was it was a no brainer for me. Even the Hunter Solomon story. I mean, it was good. It was uh, even though I'm not a fan of the character, I can't deny that it was a good good recap of the origin and introduces a new character. And a Jeremy Adams story was fantastic. And we did get a tease of Cyspiria's story. And even though I might have some concerns about it, I love I love Mike Diodato. He's one of my favorite artists right now. He's got an AW AWA series called Red. I think uh, Red Mask or something or. Is it uh, red? Red. Anyways, I've just, I just. Oh, red zone. Red zone. Uh, written by uh, uh, Colin Bunn and uh, art by Mike Diodato Jr. But it's really good. But in any event, uh, Flash eight hundred all the way. So, what about you? Oh, tougher for me. Uh, I thought it would be a little tougher for you, man. Uh, the new talent showcase is definitely deserving of the, of the pick. Uh, better issue uh, of Batman that we've had in quite a while. Peacemaker Try Hard, again, had me laughing out loud. Steelworks from Dorn really impressed me. I enjoyed Adventures of, of Superman, John Kent as well. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to go with New Challenge Showcase, the Milestone Initiative. I know a lot of these creators that, you know, they might be a little inexperienced, but they poured their heart and soul into these stories. It really showed how hard they worked. Uh, so I'm going to give my, my nod for Book of the Week to Milestone this week. So, right uh, all right. Well, that does it for this episode, everybody. Uh, appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to, to YouTube. If you're listening to the audio only version, subscribe to Rocky's channel, comic space, boom, exclamation point. Once you're there, you know what to do. Subscribe, read the notification bell, um, leave some comments like this video. Uh, we love interacting over there. Uh, if you check us out on comic boom, YouTube channel all the time. And you're curious about the other audio only content from the comic source. Just go to wherever you get your podcast, search for the comic source and subscribe. So we appreciate the support as always, everyone. And we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the comic source podcast on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Stitcher, Google play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.